this is Maureen Milliken. And this is Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. Yes, you would do if you had nothing better to do. Yeah. And we're back at Think Tank Co-working in beautiful yes. Yarmouth, Maine. We are, and it's a beautiful day. It it's is a beautiful day. most of it inside the house it's writing. Funny. Yesterday, after I finished work on my day job, I decided to go for a ride. I had to go to Rumford, which is a mill town in western Maine, to take some photos for a story I'm doing next week. And I decided to take a ride. It was a beautiful day and go up to where the fake town and my books is. Oh, you're a book? You write books? <laughs> Don't mock. But I ended up taking the scenic ride, and it's through the Western Mountains, and it was this beautiful day, although cold and windy. I hit snow and sleet. It was snowing, and I accidentally ended up in New Hampshire because <laughs> I took, and it's near New Hampshire, but I took a turn in Rangeley, Maine, outside of Rangeley, Maine, on Route 16 that I thought was going to bring me to Stratton, Maine, and instead... It took me to the Umbagog Preserve in New Hampshire, but yes. I'm driving along and I'm like, oh, I don't remember this drive being like this. Oh, I don't remember this being so pretty. And I'm driving, uh, it must have been for like 45 minutes. And I'm like, God, I thought it was a lot shorter. And then I crossed the Bienvenue, New Hampshire. It was beautiful. I saw more deer yesterday than I've probably seen my entire life put together. There were fields where there were like two dozen deer. Wow. Because it must be, well, the snow's finally melting and there's some fresh, hopefully, grass. Up there, there's still a lot of snow on the ground. Mm. But it was a nice drive and I got to work out some things in the book I'm writing in my head. I worked all day with no lunch break, nine hours straight. That should be illegal. It probably is. If it's if you if were it's my union, I know. Yeah, but it's not that. It's because you care so much. Me. It's because pe- I can't get away from my desk. I understand that. I'm um, trapped like a when I worked for a union, stuck to a thing. When a I worked for a union, you you had to find a way to get away from your desk was the thing. Yeah, but and your boss had to help you find a way. I know office where there are people, the public coming up at you. I understand. Constantly. I have an update. You do. I do. Remember, by the time this airs, it'll be two episodes ago. I still haven't finished editing the last episode. I talked about the Luke team in yes. trial at the beginning. He was found guilty on April 9th. <laughs> so by the time this airs, it'll be like a month ago. Yeah. If you remember, he had killed his wife. She was shot in the head. He buried her in the backyard. He initially said she took off on him. He started an affair like the day before she disappeared, actually. He told police that they had had a fight in the Walmart parking lot and she'd taken off. And then when they found her body buried in the backyard with two bullet holes in the head, he said she had died of an overdose, heroin overdose, and he had just buried her. There's an article in the, I think it's going to be tomorrow's Central Maine Sunday News, but it's online today, interviewing the jury for a woman. Mm. And... She said they just didn't believe all his stories. Gee, I don't know why. And it, what had happened was, and I think this wasn't known until the trial, I mean known by the public, the day before she quote-unquote disappeared, he was at a pool party and hooked up with some chick and somebody called his wife or texted her or something and said, hey, your husband's having an affair. So she probably confronted him. Yeah. And one thing led to another. So he was, yeah, the well, jury you know. only took 45 minutes <laughs> But then they went over it all and everything to make sure they had it all right. And it was the evidence that convicted him. His sentencing is coming up. Sometimes it takes a long time in between. Oh, you know, the courts are busy. But she said the big thing was his constantly changing stories. And then he, I feel bad for his lawyer because he insisted 
And, you know, people always say, why doesn't somebody take the stand? Oh, that's This is right. why you don't take a stand. He took the stand, but he couldn't keep his story straight. Then he insisted on giving the he closing argument. He gave his arguments. closing argument. We talked about that. Yeah. The update. That's so weird. I've never heard of yes. that before. But I think he was just kind of one of those narcissistic personalities that thought he no one could tell his story better than him. But, you know, people say, oh, I want to hear the person. I want them to take the stand. But even if you're an articulate person who has your story straight, your lawyer knows how you can get tripped up, how easily you can get tripped up, especially if you're lying. How easy it is but to But I'm sure up. that lawyer covered his own ass. I'm because well, I'm sure he did. Stop. Well, I mean, they got to do what they want to do. Ultimately, and I'm sure if Ask a Lawyer, Matt Nichols were here, he would tell you. We just nah. channel him now. Ultimately, the lawyer's working for the client, and the client... Yeah, if they want to do it, if you got to let them. you got to let them. And that's what happens. I think what they're afraid of is there's, there's going to be, you know, grounds for appeal. Right. But, the, you know, as long there's as... There's always... Yeah. You know, there's always an appeal, especially mm-hmm. when you're serving... I don't know what he's going to get sentenced to. Maine doesn't have parole, so it could be life or it could be something longer. There you go. And the the juror said, the, the reporter, Doug Harlow, asked her if anyone felt bad for finding him guilty, and he's probably going to spend his life in prison, and she said, no, no one felt bad for him at all. Mm-hmm. They didn't have any kids. Around. Oh, he has kids with he his first wife. He has kids with his first wife. Yeah. But seven of the jurors were female or something, and none of them liked the part where he was hooking up with somebody at the pool party. I bet they didn't. And then professing all this love for her, like to the police and at the trial, and they're like, "Uh uh-uh. So, guys, guys, if you're going to kill your girlfriend or spouse, picture the jury and picture the women on it. And think of how judgy they're going to be. Well, the other thing is, you know what, people, divorce in Maine is not difficult. You go, you pay 60 bucks, and 60 days you can be divorced. If you both agree to everything, you don't need a lawyer. You don't. You just both need to go to court. Right, but say I don't we think we want to be divorced. Right, but in a lot of these cases, I don't think people are making this rational decision. I know, but it's just what they're saying is I'm really pissed off at this person, and I don't want them in my life anymore. I know. Therefore, I'm going to kill them. Like, for instance, I'm listening to the podcast breakdown. And oh yeah, I'm listening and it's, to that You know, too. Tex MacGyver. Yes. Did he accidentally shoot his yes. wife or did he on purpose? And one of the things that came up an episode or two ago was she made a lot more money yes, than she him. Did. And he had these insurance policies. But somebody's like, is he going to kill his cash cow? And I'm like, he may have weighed it and said, I'll have all this easy money now and I won't have this bitch nagging at Although, me all the time. I keep going back and forth. I'm not really sure if he did it on purpose or not. I'm not either, but he was an asshole. Yes, he was. And it's a great advertisement for not carrying a loaded but fucking kinda, gun around. Well, that's true. But I and do he was like, a racist. Yes, he was. Is... I kind of like the fact, though, that it's not a cut and dry yes. like this one that you were just talking about, like Luke Tiemann. It's like, come yeah. on, buddy. Yeah. I mean, at least at least this one, you're not like, obviously, he's, yeah. you know. But anyway, so we far. should probably get to yes, our story. Yes, because it's going to be long. Okay. Well, don't look like that. You're the one who wrote it. I tried. I tried, people. So we know that whenever you use a book for your research... It makes the It's story. hard. It's really but hard. But it's a good it's And a I good had two story. books, actually. Oh, wow. I used both of them. A lot of the information was the same, and one of the books was was a source of the Did second. they have photos? Yes, they did. Can I borrow them? Yes, you can. Well, this book is on Kindle. Oh, can I borrow the hard Yes, one? the photos are very bad in here. Bad. Well, like um, they, they aren't reproduced well? Yes, or they're, they're gross. Bad re- no, they're not gross. Oh. They're bad reproductions. But I have some on this one. I'm gonna is it self-published? I don't 
think so. It might be. This one is called A Model Crime by Curtis Gathjee. I think it's G-A-T-H-J-E. It came out in uh, 95, I think. So and it's probably not self-published. Though. It has really bad reproductions in it, but I do have, we'll put some on our site when we get a chance, because I do have some good ones that I got online. The other one was The Mad Sculptor by Harold Schechter, and that one just came up in 2014. His was very well-researched and detailed. Oh, good. I which made like it that. hard in a way. Although, I will say this, Harold Schechter has written lots of books that are classified as true crime. This one was classified as a novel, and the beginning said this is a work of fiction, which is weird because he used newspaper source material, and I think he it was classified as a novel because there's a lot of, you know how they have those conversations and, conversation, shit, yeah. and stuff has moved around. and uh, So I kind of tried to go by what I knew from the newspaper articles and stuff like, you know, right. the stuff I knew was factual. I didn't put fake conversations in there. Anything that was quoted in the newspaper I put, although right. we'll see as I go through like the story, that. that some of the newspaper articles are not exactly reliable right. at the like time. Like the Charles Cullen, the killer nurse one a few episodes ago, there was a lengthy note at the beginning of the book, which I appreciated, where he explained, the author, Charles Graber, explained how he reproduced the conversations yeah. and blah, blah, blah. I like when they do that. They did that in this, too. And I like when they do that. And also, he notes, like Ann Rule used to do when he's made up a name. Yes. Because I'm not big on composite characters and that kind of shit. And I'll say, he didn't in this. They're all real names in, in, in the other book of Model Crime. And they both used, especially the tabloids, as source material. Excellent. But some of the tabloids were not very reliable. So I wrote what they wrote, but it's not necessarily all true. Okay. March 28, 1937, was Easter Sunday. Joseph Gedeon put on a brown suit and got ready to go to his estranged wife Mary's apartment for Easter dinner. Joining them would be their 20-year-old daughter, Veronica, who was called Ronnie, and her older sister, Ethel, 25, and Ethel's husband, Joe Kudner. So there's Joe and Joseph, just to tell you. Okay. So I'm calling the Father Joseph... And when I talk about Joe, I usually call him Joe Kudner, but I just don't want you to think when I'm saying Joseph Kudner. Joseph had been separated from Mary for about four years. They were both Hungarian immigrants and had met in New York City at a dance in the early 1910s and married after a short courtship, settling in Astoria, Queens. By 1929, they had saved up enough money to buy a brownstone on East 53rd Street Mm. in Manhattan. They lived on the first floor and rented the bedrooms to boarders. They reportedly tried operating at least one speakeasy in the basement at one point, but were shut down. Joseph had done a lot of different jobs, (laughs) including apprenticing to an upholsterer, and about the same time they bought the brownstone, he opened up his own shop a couple blocks away on 54th Street. As the years passed and their daughters grew up, he and Mary had continuing disagreements about how Mary was raising their daughters. He felt that she just let them do whatever they wanted. Ronnie got married at 16. The marriage only lasted a year or so, and she moved back home. Ethel also had an early failed marriage and had remarried. Joseph moved out and, not being able to afford a place of his own, just slept in the back of his shop, which by that time he had relocated to 34th Street. He had to move to a smaller place as work fell off with a depression. He had screened off part of his workroom for a sleeping area. He and Mary were still on good enough terms that he could come by and bathe once in a while or have a meal. Hmm. As the depression wore on, Mary was unable to afford to keep up the brownstone, and in December 1936 ended up moving into a three-bedroom apartment at 316 East 50th Street. Mary's apartment was quite small, even with three bedrooms. Still, Mary took in boarders to help pay her bills. On this Easter Sunday, there were two boarders, Lucy Biacchio, a young woman who was the niece and 
I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, but whatever. She was the niece of one of Ethel's co-workers at Vanity Fair magazine, mm. and I'll talk about that later. Okay. And Frank Burns, a British man who worked... Frank Burns. I knew you were going to say that. But it's, B-Y-R- it's B-Y-R. Oh, okay. A British man who worked as a waiter at the Racket and Tennis Club on Park Avenue, mm. which was apparently a very swanky place. Mm-hmm. As Joseph walked to Mary's apartment that Easter Sunday, he was hoping for a reconciliation with his wife. He was a little early for the 2.30 dinner time, so he stopped in Corgan's bar for a shot of schnapps. Mm. He had been in the same bar the night before until the early hours playing skee-ball, which is kind of a mashup of bowling, darts, and pinball. That's the only way I can... It's, you well, roll it's a ball like, up, this, up this incline, and it, and it goes, goes into, into these the, ring right. They still have that. Yes, they do. And at fairs, too. Yep, it goes into these rings, and yeah. he had the high score. He was very proud of it. Wow. He had lost his hat, though, the mm. night before, so he asked the bartender if he had seen it. He said no. He had a second shot of schnapps, and then he tried to call Mary's apartment from a phone booth, but there was no answer, so he figured they were all at the Easter parade. He stopped in a shop and bought some chocolates for his daughters, a potted lily for his wife, and cigars for himself and for Ethel's husband, Joe Kudner. It was about 2.45, and he tried to call the apartment again, but the phone just rang. He walked over to the apartment building and rang the front bell. There was a note on the mailbox of apartment 16, which was Mary's apartment. It read, I overslept. Call when you get back. Stephen. Joseph didn't know any Stephen. Ethel and her husband, Joe, showed up. They had come from their home in Astoria. Joseph told them he didn't think anyone was home. No one was picking up the phone or answering the bell. Alpha said, keep ringing. And as Joseph rang, someone came out of the building, so he went in. Because like a lot of buildings, right. you have yeah, to ring get buzzed, get buzzed in. in. Yeah. Ethel didn't want to walk all the way up the stairs if no one was home. Uh-huh. It was four flights up, and she had new shoes that hurt her feet. Joseph decided to go up alone and left the couple waiting at the bottom of the stairs near the front entrance. When Joseph approached the apartment door, he noticed it was ajar. As he entered, Ronnie's dog, a Pekingese named Tucci, approached him acting frightened. He was whimpering and he tried to crawl under the couch. Since Tucci recognized Joseph, he didn't bark, although he normally did bark at strangers. The neighbors had often complained about the yappy dog. Mm. There is a picture of Tucci, so oh, okay, good. I have to look. He's looking at a newspaper in there. Uh, I have it online too. The dog's looking at the newspaper. Somebody posed him that way. (laughs) I would think. Yeah, I I wouldn't think he could really read it himself. The apartment was quiet as Joseph walked through the living room and into the kitchen. Nothing was cooking in the oven as he would have expected it to, but there was a bowl of uncut green beans on the counter, as well, or probably on the table. They probably didn't have a counter. Yeah. As well as a dressed pork roast that had not yet been put into the oven. Mm, that sounds good. Joseph, <laughs> Joseph went back into the living room and entered the room Ronnie and Mary shared. The Murphy bed had been pulled down but had not been slept in. No one was in the room. He went back into the living room. He noticed... One of the other bedroom doors was open, the room the young woman boarder slept in. He entered the room and saw his youngest daughter, Ronnie, lying on the unmade bed, naked with bruises on her neck. He looked in the third bedroom and saw the Englishman, as they all called him, lying on his bed, his pillow soaked in blood. Mm. Joseph retreated downstairs and told Ethel and Joe Kudner what he had seen. Ethel wanted to know where Mary was. Joseph said she must have escaped and gone for help. Joseph went back up to the apartment and searched the closets, but did not find his wife. He went back down and made Ethel and Joe come upstairs with him. They didn't want to, but he said they had to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He didn't want to go back up there by himself. They all looked through the apartment one last time, and there was no sign of Mary. The trio walked to the East 51st police station, Ethel sobbing the whole way. 
They were told Mrs. Gedeon had not come in to make a report. Joseph later said that that was when he knew that she too must be dead. That's what Schechter wrote in his book. But in the model crime book, they said that Ethel and Joe Kudner stayed at the apartment, but I don't think they did because why would they want to stay in the Right, apartment? especially... You don't know, two people have been killed? And they're, I know, and they were at the police station later, so right. I don't see why they wouldn't have been there then. Anyway, Joseph returned to the apartment with three detectives while Ethel and Joe stayed at the police station. Tucci did not bark when they came in again, probably because Joseph Tucci. was with them, until the detectives entered Lucy's bedroom, which was the one that Ronnie was in. Then he started yapping frantically. His barking and running around alerted them to Mary's body, which was under the bed. She was also strangled, and her underpants had been removed, which made the police wonder if sexual assault had been the motivation for the women's murders. Mm. While Tucci was all worked up and upset, the detectives noticed that Joseph Gedeon did not show much emotion. They thought his understated reaction to the death of his wife and daughter was a bit odd. That's always the beginning of the mm. end. For you got to pretend. But then if you do, then they're like, oh, he's uh, crying. He's so fake. He, he cried, but no there tears. No tears. But the thing is, too, Tucci's unrelenting yapping got so bad. They had someone from the ASPCA. They shot him. <laughs> they shot him. No. They had someone from the ASPCA come and take him away. They were trying to process the crime scene. Yeah, I get it. The crime scene that three people had just already tramped all over. And But yeah, I but know that. I know. I know. About 4 p.m., the phone rang. One of the detectives answered. The man on the other end identified himself as Stephen Butter and was looking for Ronnie. He was wondering if it was okay to come over. (laughs) The detective got his address and said he would come to Stephen. It turns out that Stephen Butter was the last person, besides the murderer, of course, unless he was the murderer, Mm. to see Ronnie alive. Stephen and Ronnie had spent the previous evening together, and he dropped her off about 3 a.m. Stephen had barely known Ronnie until the night before. His friend, Lincoln Hauser, had been dating Ronnie. Lincoln was going away for the holiday weekend and asked his friend Stephen to keep an eye on Ronnie Mm -hmm. and take her out Saturday. Stephen agreed, and just so his friend Link wouldn't get the wrong idea, he and Ronnie each agreed to invite a friend. Ronnie was going to bring her girlfriend, Jean Carp, and Stephen's friend, Frank Schlenner, would be coming over. Stephen lived with his parents and sister, but they were going upstate to a farm the family owned for the weekend, so he had the place to himself. And he was young. He was like 22. Part two. And how old was Ronnie? She was 20. Okay. And he was like 22, 23. Right. Ronnie showed up alone. Jean had a head cold. Oh. Hmm. But Frank showed up, and the three of them drank all the beer in the icebox. So Stephen went This This story (laughs) of this night reminds me of some nights I've had. (laughs) So Stephen went out to get a quart of gin. Ronnie made spaghetti while the two men went for more beer once the gin was gone. Dinner was served at midnight, and the beer ran out at two. Stephen suggested they all have a nightcap at the bar on the corner, but Frank said he had to go to mass with his mom in the morning. (laughs) Stephen and Ronnie parted ways with Frank on the street and headed to the Monte Carlo bar on 51st Street for a nightcap. At 3 a.m., the bar closed, and Stephen walked Ronnie the rest of the way home. In the stairwell, they said goodnight and smoked a cigarette. She invited him in for coffee, but then said no, her mother was sleeping. They agreed he'd pick her up for 10 a.m. Mass and the Easter parade in the morning, and he would join the family for Easter dinner after. Then he left and walked back to his apartment. The next day, he overslept and had a massive hangover. I bet. I know. He went out for a paper. And the thing I was going to say, like, if you're eating the spaghetti at midnight and you've been drinking all night, uh... I know. Oh, and by the way, a model crime, the guy that wrote it is like the nephew of Stephen Butter. 
He went out for a paper. He preferred tabloids. <laughs> he impulsively went by Ronnie's place and rang the bell, but no one answered, and so he left a note. When Stephen called the apartment Easter afternoon, he had assumed it was Joe Kudner who answered. He was surprised when the two detectives showed up at his apartment and told him he was wanted for questioning. They brought him back to the Gettian apartment, where he noticed a crowd around the building. Inside, they were dusting for police were dusting for fingerprints, and photographers were taking pictures. And they used to let the press into crime scenes all the yeah. time. Yeah, like so good old was, days. So it was like newspaper photographers. They asked him if he had a witness to his whereabouts the previous evening, and he said, yeah, Ronnie. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> they started asking him about Mary Gettian, but he told them he had never met her. They decided to bring him back to the 51st Street Police Station to question him. As they let him in, news photographers yelled at him and took his picture. He kept hearing Ronnie's name in the crowd of people talking, and he kind of got worried because he didn't Mm. know. And he saw Ethel and Joe in the station, and he had met them before in passing, so he knew who they were. He asked Ethel what had happened, and she said, don't you know? (laughs) And apparently didn't. The news outlets all knew what happened. In 1937, there were nine daily papers in New York. Some were broadsheets like the New York Times or the New York Herald Tribune. And then there were tabloids. The Daily Mirror, the Daily News, the American, the New York Post. There was a lot of competition for news, and the tabloids relied more on one big front-page story with a catchy headline and lots of photos, which they still do. At the time, news photographers and reporters were allowed at crime scenes, like I said. Yeah. They also hung out at the police station, mm-hmm. and they also all pulled together and rented like an apartment or an apartment building across from the police station so they could keep an eye on it all the time, apparently. Yeah. So it didn't take long for the news to break. And also, I wanted to remind our listeners that this was when they had more than one edition a day. It wasn't like right. now when it's in the morning, that's the only edition. Right. Well, we'll probably... I don't big know. Newspapers big newspapers have had them all more. day, yeah. and a lot of cities also had a morning paper and an mm-hmm. afternoon like paper. Portland used to, yeah. It was front and page news on all the tabloids Monday. And there was some news on the broadsheets, the bigger ones, but the tabloids were the, are the stars of this story. It was a story made for tabloid news because Ronnie Gideon, along with being young and beautiful, was a model, mm. and there were many photographs of her in circulation. And she was not just any model. She had often posed nude or scantily clad. That was her main source of income. Most of the papers called her an art model. Can I ask another question? Don't get mad. So even though there were three people dead, a lot of the focus was on her because of of her beauty. Of course it was. Just like it would be now. Yeah. Most of the papers called her an art model. One photographer who had a lot of nude images of Ronnie sold them to all the papers oh. at 10 bucks a pop. Figured, why not? Mm-hmm. Um, and they airbrushed translucent veils on her body. <laughs> and you'll see if you look at yeah, these I'll pictures. Look at it, yeah. And printed as many photos of her as they could, along with headlines like, Three Murdered in Beauty's Home, <laughs> stuff like that. Ronnie modeled for the covers of Pulp Fiction magazines, especially the true crime variety. There were tons of these publications during the Depression. A lot of them were crime stories, but there were also magazines for mystery or science fiction stories or sports or sex. Pretty much anything that was interesting to people. The stories inside were dramatic and overwritten, not dissimilar to the tabloid newspapers. It was entertainment for people at the time because, all the, uh, you know, they had radio, movies, and newsreels, but, you know... Other than that, it wasn't like now. The true crime magazines with titles like True Detective, Inside Detective, Dime Detective, Mm. Women in Crime, True Crime, 
They usually had a picture on the cover, a drawing or painting, of a young, lovely woman in some state of undress, sometimes bound and or gagged, mm. about to be ravaged by a looming presence. And it was often true of the sci-fi ones, too. They would they right. would incorporate they a were, nice, a beautiful girl. Right. They were aimed for young guys, right. but women Period. read them, too. Yeah. Ronnie got into modeling because of Ethel. As I mentioned, Ethel worked for Vanity Fair magazine. She had started out as a stenographer and worked her way up to being a secretary, and she became the private secretary to Helen Norton, who was the managing editor of the magazine. And Helen took a liking to Ethel and would bring her. There was a lot of schmoozing in that job. Mm. And it apparently went out of print, and then it must have revived or something. Yeah. Because they said it went out of print, and then and Ethel went to work somewhere else. So I'm sure, I don't know what happened. It came back as something else. Yeah. It was more of a women's magazine back then. Ethel invited Ronnie to a party that she was going to. She introduced her younger sister to, to her boss, Helen Norton. And Helen was impressed by Ronnie's looks and introduced her to Condé Nast, who was Vanity Fair's publisher and also Helen Norton's lover. Condé Nast's daughter, Natika, was an artist just starting out, and Ronnie posed for her. From there, Ronnie started modeling in earnest, registering with the Hollywood Service Agency. She did work at trade shows and conventions, but she found out that the fact that she didn't mind posing in the nude ensured her more and higher-paying work. Gee, there's a surprise. She posed for amateur camera clubs as a figure model and, of course, did a lot of modeling work for the pulp magazines. Everyone who worked with Ronnie and knew her well had nice things to say about her. One of the illustrators she posed for, Saul Tepper, said she was, quote, a swell kid with a beautiful smile. She never impressed me as the kind of girl who would become involved in any kind of tragedy. Did her smile light up the room? when <laughs> She was so gay and light-spirited. I never saw her moody or temperamental. From what I saw of her, I got the impression of a gay, good-natured girl who seemed to get a lot of fun out of life. Mm-hmm. West Peterson, editor of Inside Magazine, one of the magazines she posed for the most, said Ronnie was decent in every sense of the word, an honest girl from a family in straitened circumstances who was trying to earn her own living with the natural talents with which she was endowed. I don't think it was talents. She was not cheap. She did not sleep with men so they would give her money. Had she not chosen to be a photographer's and illustrator's model, she might have been another stenographer, a salesgirl, or a nurse. She had the intelligence to succeed in any of those, those were callings. all Those were all the things that were open to you back then, yeah. I guess. Sometimes you could be a reporter. Like like his girl Friday. Yeah. No, but they talk about what's her name. But despite the sentiments from those who knew her, the tabloids couldn't print enough about her nude, or almost nude, photos. They printed just about everything they could about her many male acquaintances and her love of partying, about how she once posed for a stag movie. Walter Winchell implied she had recently had an abortion, which was true. Detectives confirmed it in their investigation. But she was 20. She was just trying to have fun and live her life. It was a shitty time. It was a depression. You know, it's like, what the hell? The other thing was there were so many great pictures of Ronnie in poses that mimicked her own death from the magazine covers. They just couldn't help printing them. Her murder was front-page news for weeks and even made Life magazine. The police were not sure what the motive could be or who the target was. The boarder, Frank Burns, was killed in the most savage way. While the two women were strangled, he was stabbed repeatedly with something thin and sharp. Police suspected an ice pick, which probably wouldn't be much of a weapon these days because people don't have ice picks like they used to. But Yeah. But if they did, it's still a good weapon. Yes, it's, it is. I mean, wasn't that I one of the weapons in the Jeffrey McDonald? Yes, it was. One? Yeah, people did have ice picks, too. Then. 
Because they would have the bar there. You, with the yeah, ice you'd have your highballs. Your your yeah, yeah. But again, Ronnie was found nude, and her mother was partially unclothed, so sexual assault may have been the motive. And also, the newspapers had tons of stories about sex fiends. They were always like printing stories about, you know, predators and yes. stuff. Yeah, they do now. I know people think it's this new thing, but it's. No. And Mary had bruises and abrasions around her genital area, while Ronnie showed signs of recently having had sex. Even so, after an examination, the medical examiner could not conclude that either woman had been raped. Mm-hmm. Joseph Gedeon said that either the Englishman was the target, or Ronnie was killed by some rich man from Boston who had been bugging her, buying her presents, and not leaving her alone. Police quickly decided Stephen Butter was not the murderer. They weren't so quick to discount Joseph Gedeon. A lot of their suspicions stemmed from the fact that he seemed indifferent to the killing of his wife and daughter. They questioned him until 3 a.m. Monday morning. When he left the police station, he was trailed back to his shop by reporters. Early the next morning, five police detectives showed up at his upholstery shop with a search warrant. They were quite interested in the nude photos of women he had pinned up around his bed. Mm. They made him turn out his pockets and had a couple of nude postcards in his jacket pocket. Why shouldn't I have them? I'm a grown man, he (laughs) said to the police. (laughs) I can't do his Hungarian accent. The police took Joseph's 12-inch upholstery needles and owls as evidence. Owls. 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 Much to his chagrin. He couldn't get any work done without his tools. After they left, he went to his friend's house, and on the way back to his shop was stopped by a photographer from the American. Joseph had been drinking and posed for the camera. Back at the shop, he was met by a throng of photographers. He led them into his shop where they took pictures, including one of his pinup wall. Mm. He became infuriated and kicked them out. Well, what the hell did he think they were going to do? Pu- he was drunk. He's drunk. Know, okay. And he's not too bright. Well, no, I shouldn't say he's not too bright. He's He was he was drunk a lot. He had hardly any sleep. You'll see yes. this whole week he had hardly any sleep, and yeah. all he did was drink and bowl and stuff. Okay. So I don't think he knew how to handle the situation either. Who would? The photos of his pinup wall were in all the tabloids the next day. <laughs> I bet they were. Veronica's friend, Jean Carp, was also mobbed by the press. She had called the apartment Sunday afternoon to catch up with Ronnie and had spoken to a detective. She, like Stephen Butter, had thought it was Joe Kudner. She ended up being brought into the station for questioning Sunday evening, and when she left, she was photographed crying. She was pissed off on Monday when the World Telegram had a headline that said, It might have been me, sobbed Slane Model's friend. <laughs> the article underneath quoted her liberally, although she had never spoken to a reporter, and they even spelled her last name wrong with a C instead of a K. Mm. So on Tuesday, when confronted by reporters on her front steps, she spoke to them. She told them Ronnie was not a gold digger. The characterizations of her in the news had been wrong. They asked her about a man named Frenchy Gray. She said that he was not a mean man, but he was annoying. And Jean hadn't realized that she had put the police on to Georges Frenchy Garay when they questioned her. And he immediately rose to the top of the suspect list. Frenchy, who was actually French, had come to America about 1920. He was a sometimes chauffeur who wore a chauffeur's uniform all the time, even when he wasn't working. <laughs> he spoke with a thick French accent and tried to act like Maurice Chevalier all the time, even singing his songs. He had boarded at Mary Gedeon's 53rd Street boarding house shortly before her move to the 51st Street apartment. Jean Carp told police that Frenchie and Mary had, in her words, quarreled bitterly about money. Also, Frenchie had... Quote, made nuisance of himself to Ronnie. He had the hots for Ronnie, and she was not interested. He was older. He was like in 50s, mm. 40s, maybe 50s. 
Police realized that the person who did the murder must have been known to Chuchi, the Pekingese doggy, mm. because no one heard him barking that night. Frenchy Gray fit that bill. Also, he had a police record for petty larceny and had spent time in jail. Monday after the crime, Frenchie was picked up at a shoe shop where he was doing a paint job, quote, in exchange for some lounging privileges. <laughs> <laughs> All these people, like, live on the edge, like, it's yeah. like, what the hell? His rented room a few blocks away was searched, and police found two bloody handkerchiefs. The mirror's headline read, Hold Frenchie in murder of three, while the news said, See chauffeur in model's murder. Frenchie told police he had spent time in a friend's home Easter weekend, Charles Macoro. They searched Macoro's home and found four ice picks, mm. one with what looked like blood on it. They took Macoro into custody also. They had figured it must have taken two people to commit the crime anyway. How could one murderer overcome three people without making more of a mess of the apartment and more noise? Unfortunately for the police, both men had airtight alibis. Besides that, Frenchie suffered from chronic nosebleeds, <laughs> and the ice pick had rust on it, not blood. As he left the police station, Frenchie told reporters, I can't, I'm not yeah, don't go. do the French accent. I never fight with anybody. I'm a gentleman. I have never caused trouble for anybody, especially any woman. Mm. To Ronnie, I was like the papa, the uncle. We were friends. No, I did not kill Ronnie Gideon, that beautiful girl. No, I did not kill her good, hard-working mama, nor this lodger of theirs, a man I do not know from Adam. When asked who did, he said, I tell you, Mama Gideon was a very stingy woman. Mm -hmm. Somebody killed her for her money. The other two were killed because they hear or see something. Lucy Biaccio, the other boarder, had not been in the apartment that weekend. Police discovered a letter on her bureau that indicated she was spending the weekend with a friend in Adams, Massachusetts. Monday afternoon, police questioned her and then brought her back to the murder scene to see if anything was missing or looked out of place. She noticed her alarm clock was missing. It was a cheap baby bang clock with luminous numbers and hands. She thought it odd that someone would take it. Bobby Flower, Ronnie's ex-husband, was also ruled out. He worked as a hot dog vendor, and the night of the murders, he had been selling hot dogs at the American Bowling Congress at the 212th Regiment Armory. When asked by reporters about Ronnie, he chided them about the way she'd been portrayed in the newspapers. You fellows have it all cockeyed. Ronnie was a good girl, and nothing will ever make me change my opinion. Aww. She was my wife, and I know her like a book. She was good all the way. He said the marriage had failed because she was so young and wanted to go out and have fun, and he didn't have the money to treat her to the life she wanted. Joseph Gedeon was the one police kept circling back to. They were sure he had something to do with the murders. They really didn't have any reason except they thought he wasn't acting the way a grieving man should. The reporters also followed him around. The police and reporters, I should say. They had, like, detectives with him, like, with him all the time. Uh, <laughs> like, he was going around, like, drinking. Going to his and, bar. Yes. Uh, Plain skidoo. I think partly because he, he kept giving them things to write about. One of them asked him about his apparent lack of emotion. He said, I'm a fatalist and a naturalist. I believe everything happens because of causation, that it is inevitable, and you might as well take things as they come. I'm also a naturalist because I don't like to act affected. I didn't think any of this really made sense because fate and causation are the same thing. You know, he's just... I know. You know. But he's also drunk. The Mirror described Joseph as a bespectacled little man, extraordinarily interested in the nude, a student <laughs> of eroticism, mm -hmm. a French postcard fancier. 
In the days following the murders, Joseph got very little sleep and seemed to spend most of his time bowling and drinking. Early on Tuesday morning, he got fed up when mobbed by the press at a bowling alley and threw his glass of beer at the photographer. The photographer got the shot right when Joseph was about to let loose the glass in his right hand, a cigarette in his left hand, a scowl on his face. It was front page of the Daily Mirror on Thursday. Mm -hmm. The tabloids were full of theories. The news had a headline, Slayer was jealous, says crime expert. The expert was Dr. Carlton Simon, who said Mary was, quote, a woman of magnetic middle-aged sex appeal. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Just like us. Been there. He said it was clear that Ronnie got her lack of inhibitions because of the way her mother brought her up. Apparently, some man Mary had dallied with and then dumped and killed her. Mm. Or maybe a like a wife, but I don't think they thought it was a woman. No. Another theory was that Frank Burns, the British lodger, was a gambler who had bad debts or was having an affair and a jealous husband killed him. In both scenarios, the women were killed because they were witnesses. The story was dominating the papers, so much so that on Tuesday, the Daily News wrote an editorial in response to letters complaining about the coverage. The title of the editorial was, What is the Best Story? There are two photographs, one of Ronnie Gideon, lounging like on a bed, and the other of Supreme Court <laughs> Chief Justice <laughs> Charles Evans Hughes. This is the editorial. I thought you would appreciate it. Yeah, this. yeah, let's hear it. On Monday, two big stories broke. The United States Supreme Court reversed itself in the women's minimum wage law case, okayed the Railway Labor Act, counterpart of the Wagner Act, okayed the Fraser Lemke Farm Mortgage Moratorium Act, and again dodged a decision on the Wagner Act. And some person at this writing unknown murdered Veronica Gedeon, a model, her mother, Mary Gedeon, and their lodger, Frank Burns, under circumstances most atrocious but most interesting, in a Beekman Hill, Manhattan apartment. Which story deserved the big headlines? Our managing editor decided to give both stories banner headlines on the front page, an unusual makeup for the news, but with the top position and picture awarded to the murder story. We realized the Supreme Court story was historically more significant. Those decisions will affect our economic life for a long time to come. The tragic murdered model will be forgotten soon, to be fleetingly remembered perhaps when some other girl is murdered in a like manner. And and I just like to weigh in. I I think probably what's really behind it is they know the other stuff is important, but people think it's boring. Yes. And but I just want to say the Wagner Act. It is the law that allows workers to organize labor unions mm-hmm. and is the biggest piece of labor legislation ever enacted in the United States. So that was big news. Okay. But look at this murder story as a story. The murders themselves were grisly and mysterious enough, but also they were committed against a background of of light living and light loving, mm. family complications, bootlegging, shadowy married friends of the victims, etc. Mystery story writers, Agatha Christie, Rex Stout, and the late Conan Doyle, or Edgar Allan Poe himself, if he were alive, would revel in such an assortment of raw materials for a murder plot. And the resulting novel, play, or movie would sell. Murder sells papers, books, plays, because we are all fascinated by murder. It is a part of life, the most fatally intriguing part. And this is a murder story in real life. On the Supreme Court issue, we think most people have made up their minds and that the power of the court as a super legislature will be curbed. We doubt that many people want to read acres of news stories and reams of editorials on either side of it. Perhaps people should be more interested today Mm -hmm. in the Supreme Court than in the Gideon murder, but we don't think they are. 
So what that is is justifying the... It's just a long-winded rationalization for yes. sex sells and we're selling papers. Yes. Hey, at least they're owning it. But you'll like this letter to the editor they had a couple, All right. a couple of days later. Okay. I ain't much a hand at writing because my kids only a year ago taught me to write. But I want to tell you... Can I just say that sounds like what somebody would make up in a book? I know, I think it's a fake. It sounds like a fake letter to me, but it's still funny. Okay. But I want to tell you that I think your paper is darn good. I learned to read from the news. I like them pictures of the beautiful murdered model. And I tear them out and hang them on the wall. (laughs) My wife gets mad, but ha ha. And them people who says your paper is not good is nuts. Ha ha. It was signed, Delighted Customer. <laughs> but you guys didn't get many Delighted Customer ones. No, we didn't. And in all the papers I worked at, you had to put your real name and yeah, well, where you lived. And somebody would actually call and make sure you're the one who wrote the letter. These ones had a lot, though. In the days before internet commentary, <laughs> Delighted <laughs> Customer. That sounds like something somebody in the newsroom made up. It also sounds like something you'd read online nowadays. Yeah. Same type of people. On Tuesday afternoon, the papers reported that a bloody fingerprint had been found on the bathroom door. There had been a couple of other clues that they reported, but it turned out to be nothing. There was a palm print, but that had been left by a medical examiner accidentally. Mm. And Mary had hairs in her hand, but they turned out to be her own hairs. But the police were excited about the print. They wanted to see if it matched Joseph Gedeon who they were sure was the killer, but I thought that was stupid because he was at the crime scene. So Yeah, I, well, I was going to say, Joseph, Gideon, Joe, what's-his-name, and Ethel, and, other, yeah. and Ethel were walking around. They had reporters and photographers walking around. Stupid. Well, yeah. you know. Reporters and other looky-loos watched Joseph as he went on his daily errands Tuesday as if it were any other day, when his wife and daughter were being transferred from the morgue to the funeral home on West 90th Street. After his morning errands and lunch at a diner, he went by the funeral home to drop off Mary and Ronnie's burial outfits that Ethel had picked out. While there, he asked to see Ronnie, but the funeral director would not allow it. Mm. He became belligerent, and they had words, all recorded by the press, of course. Mm -hmm. He left in a huff and went back to his shop where he locked the door. Some of his friends, all Hungarian, showed up. With him was Paul Nadanyi, who was the editor of the local Hungarian paper. I wonder if that's still around. It was called the Daily Nepzava. Joseph agreed to an interview. He said, the cops can't break me. I have seven lives. Mm. He was kind of like bragging with his friends. I get that. While he was being interviewed, other members of the press outside his shop called to him, telling him that his alibi was being questioned. The owner of Corgan's Bar and Grill, where Joseph had been playing skee-ball all night, was now saying it was busy that night and he couldn't remember if Joseph had been there all night. Joseph yelled out the window at them. Run, one reporter described him as erupting in geysers of wrath. <laughs> he said, would you like it if your reporters were out like that? He said, you're lying, he's lying, or you're both are crazy as hell. Then he went bowling with his friends for four or five hours. I have to say, it sounds like the press was having a ball. Uh, I bet they were. Yeah. Well, especially with Joseph. He kept saying stuff yeah. that would get him in trouble. and He would react too much to what people... Right. They would egg him on and he would react. Yeah. After he went bowling for four or five hours is when the they showed up at the bowling alley. It was like seven in the morning and he'd been bowling all night. And that's when he threw, threw the, the beer. glass yeah. of beer at them. After that, the police brought him back to his shop where he slept for a couple hours. It was about 11 a.m. Wednesday. Detectives showed up to bring Joseph in for questioning again. They were not able to match his fingerprint to the one at the crime scene, but they were still convinced that he was the murderer. His skee-ball partner said that he could only remember Joseph being there from midnight until 3 a.m. closing time. 
and the bartender said he only saw him there about 7 p.m. So the cops wondered where was he between 7 and midnight, and where was he after 3 a.m.? Because it would have been after 3 a.m. because that's when Steve dropped off Ronnie, right? That's right. Yeah. Also, he wasn't wearing the same clothes he had been wearing Saturday, which people used to wear the same suit. I think back like then always. people had, yeah. like I do now, like two outfits yeah. and just wore the same thing all the so time. So they wondered if he'd gotten rid of them because of bloodstains. The papers continued to write about him as if he were a degenerate. One wrote that he, quote, <laughs> I like this one, he used pictures of naked women to satiate his queer animal desires, and that he left his wife, quote, in favor of solitude with sex practices more bizarre than the marriage bed. Mm-hmm. Do you think some of it was prejudice against him being an immigrant? Yeah, maybe? yeah probably. Dr. Carlton Simon, remember him from before the mm-hmm. expert, crime expert? He said Joseph's behavior was, quote, certainly not that of a normal man. He likes to read about sex and treasures photographs of nude women. Yeah, normal men don't do that. Though Joseph was a small, wiry man, police were convinced he was strong enough to pull off the killings. Because of working with his hands all the time, they had become strong. Also, he bowled all the time. His scores were usually 200 to 225, and he bragged about bowling 70 games a night. He used a 16-pound ball, which I don't know is that. That's pretty heavy. I would he's, use a 10 or 12 if and I were he's a He was little. He's a little guy. I bowled at 238 once. His favorite trick <laughs> There was one quote that I didn't put in the paper, but I mean, I didn't put it in this, but one of the things that they used to say how indifferent he was, it was after the murder and he had been out bowling and he was bragging to one of the reporters about his high school, like his Maybe he was school. on the spectrum or something. Yeah, I know. His favorite trick was bending a beer bottle cap in half with his thumb and forefinger. So he had a lot of strength in his hands. The motive was the usual conjecture police and prosecutors come up with when they don't have a good one. Mary and Frank Burns were having an affair, and Joseph killed them in a fit of jealousy. Maybe it just isn't in the books and stuff, but it sounds like... They haven't even looked into, like, there's no victimology no. here. They haven't even looked into Frank Burns at all or no. who he was or what his no, life was didn't. like. or anything. They didn't. There wasn't much known about him. He didn't have much family. Well, it's the cop's job to find oh, out. Oh, shit. So he killed them in a fit of jealousy, and he killed Ronnie because he obsessively disapproved of her lifestyle and choices. Joseph was questioned for hours at the 51st Street Station, sitting in a hard chair with a light shining in his face. <laughs> Just like yeah. in the movie. Different teams of interrogators took turns. Assistant District Attorney Francis Morrow, Deputy Police Commissioner Harold Fowler, Deputy Chief Inspector Keir, and I don't have his first name, and District Attorney William C. Dodge. They questioned his alibi, but he maintained he had not left Corrigan's all night and suggested the bartender simply wasn't paying attention to what he was doing the whole time. They asked him why he wasn't showing grief, and he said, I'm always that way. Things hurt me deep, but inside. They asked him if he loved his wife. He said, she was an ignorant woman. She didn't know how to bring up her children, but I wouldn't kill her. (laughs) (laughs) They asked him about Ronnie. Did he love her? He said, she was never dutiful to me. I paid $20 for the book of knowledge when she was little. She wouldn't study it. All she wanted to do was go to movies. But Ethel, my other daughter, she read the book. She was a good girl. Ah. They hammered him on his love of erotica and naked photos of women. He admitted that he had pictures and books, but, quote, that wouldn't make me commit murders. He said he loved naked women. And But then he said, I love all nature, anything that is beautiful, not only women, but trees, flowers, birds. He said that his pictures weren't nasty. They were all from art magazines. 
they made him try on the gray suede glove they found at the crime scene. Oh, no. <laughs> it's it the glove. His, I know. It fit his hand, but he told them he was a poor man and hadn't owned a pair of gloves in years. Hour after hour, even when yelled and beaten, Joseph remained steadfast. You're making a mistake. I didn't kill my family. And it's just back to the glove. It's not like gloves come in a ton of sizes. Know. You know, there's like small, medium, and large. I, right? I think they were just trying to get him to admit right. it. And he wouldn't. He yeah. would not. You know, we've Good talked about him. false confessions. District Attorney William Dodge told reporters on Wednesday afternoon, I can state positively that we have a definite suspect. The news reported, though he refused to comment further, his implication was obvious, that the police were ready to break the murder of the artist model. The tabloid headlines read, Hold father of murdered model. Police tighten net on slain model's dad. Gideon faces arrest. DA has suspect in triple killing. Model case solved, says DA. Hmm. Meanwhile, detectives search the upholstery shop to look for the other suede glove, the brown suit, and a murder weapon used to kill Frank Burns. The one the tabloids called the Gideon Death Needle. Oh, jeez. They didn't have any of those, but they did find an old thirty-eight revolver with two bullets in it and a box of horsehair. Joseph said it was given to him to hold by a fellow passenger on the steamship that brought him to New York almost three decades prior. And hello, no one was shot. He, I know. He said he was holding on to it until the guy came to get it, which police are like, for 30 years, he's like, yeah, well. Police charged him with violating the Sullivan Act, possessing an unlicensed gun. It was a felony with poss- a possible jail sentence of five years. Since they had been holding him for about 20 hours at this point, they were glad to have something to charge him with to keep him in jail. Cause yeah. Couldn't keep him much longer. On Thursday afternoon, the police asked Joseph if he would like to attend the funeral of his wife and daughter. He said yes. The area around the funeral home was mobbed with onlookers. When Joseph was spotted, they yelled stuff at him, like, Ooh, there's the father, you killer, all this stuff. He put his hat in front of his face to shield himself from photographers. The chapel at the funeral home was filled with flowers from people who knew Ronnie professionally and her many boyfriends. There were few true mourners there, though. Most were curiosity seekers and people from the press. Ethel almost collapsed a couple of times and had to leave the room. Jean Carp also swooned at Ronnie's casket. A tabloid photographer took pictures of the women in their caskets before he got thrown out, and they both had their dresses pulled up to cover their necks. Although Joseph remained stoic, his son-in-law, Joe Kudner, along with Bobby Flower, Ronnie's ex-husband, Stephen Butter, and Link Hauser were all crying. Bobby Flower was photographed kneeling beside Ronnie's casket. The two women were buried at St. Mary's Cemetery in Yonkers. They were buried in one grave Ronnie buried on top of Mary. Ethel owned the burial plot. As the coffins were lowered into the grave, Joseph burst into tears and went towards Ethel. They sat together in wooden chairs, embracing each other and crying. Well, he was probably worn out. Yeah. Police then returned to the station with Joseph, where they questioned him for six more hours. Then he was put under arrest for the illegal gun possession charge and put in a jail cell. Since Sunday morning, he had barely slept and had been questioned for over 30 hours, but he finally got a good night's sleep. He just went right to sleep. Ethel retained a former assistant DA as a lawyer for Joseph, Peter Sabatino. Too bad they didn't get him sooner. Huh. Joseph described the beating that had accompanied his questioning. When they got before the judge, ADA Raymond Leo asked the magistrate, Michael Ford, to set Joseph's bail at $15,000 because he was suspect in a triple murder. Sabatino said his client had no criminal record and asked for a $50 bail. When the judge set the bail at $10,000, Sabatino argued that Joseph had been beaten and demanded he be examined by court-appointed doctors. 
The judge agreed, and three doctors were to examine Joseph. The police commissioner, Louis Valentine, told police that the bruises were from some scuffles Joseph had been involved in prior to his arrest. He had even broken his glasses in one, in one of those scuffles, and the cops had chipped in to buy him new glasses. No way were they involved in any beating. And there were some tabloid readers who didn't think Joseph did the murders. A couple people knew he didn't do it. John Shuttleworth was the editor of True Detective magazine. On Friday morning, he told one of his reporters, Frank Preston, to go ask around Joseph's neighborhood and see if anyone had seen him Saturday night. A boxer named Anthony Rocco, who lived in the apartment above Joseph's shop, said he'd seen Joseph a little after 3 a.m. on Sunday morning. The two men were coming in the building at the same time and said good morning. Rocco said Joseph was pretty drunk. So the journalist basically did what the cops yes, should have done. Yes, they did. He knew the exact time because he always set his alarm clock by his watch and looked at the watch right after he got in his apartment. Preston asked him why he didn't tell the police, and he said, I didn't want to get in a jam. Mm. Preston convinced Rocco to accompany him to the police station where Rocco told the police what he had seen. His story matched Joseph's claim that he had come straight home from Corrigan's bar that night. Later that afternoon, Joseph's attorney was in court with the doctor's reports. Joseph's injuries included abrasions to the lower jaw, scratches behind the right ear, a black and blue left ear, abrasions and contusions above the right eye, and black and blue marks on the chest and back of the neck. Sabatino said, my client has been brutally beaten. I want him released on a low bail so I can get him to press charges against those responsible. The gun charge is not connected in any way to the murders. This man is being railroaded. The police and the district attorney have no case whatsoever. The judge reduced bail to $1,000, and the DA agreed to withdraw references to the murder and only charged Joseph with the violation of the Sullivan Law. Before Joseph was returned to his cell, photojournalists took a bunch of photos showing the injuries. One photo had the caption, Police did that. <laughs> Saturday morning, the tabloids showed a triumphant Joseph as he was released from the tombs, which was the jail right. they called. They call it the tombs. What, yeah. Do you know why they call it that? I, I used to, but I don't, I don't anymore. Know. And one, he's wearing a T-shirt and pulling on a suspenders, cigarette dangling from his mouth. The headline above it says, Gideon Free. The caption below reads, Joseph Gideon prepares to catch up on rest in his newfound freedom. He's out on a $1,000 bail on the gun charge. No bruises on his face. On Saturday, Frank Burns was laid to rest at St. John's Cemetery in Queens. Unlike the two women who were killed with him, there weren't crowds of people. Only eight people came to his funeral, six co-workers from the New York Racket and Tennis Club, and two distant relatives. There were some reporters there also. Burns was buried in a plot that belonged to George Longfellow, who was, according to the Mirror, quote, a remote relation by marriage. The Mirror also said that Burns, quote, history as a lodger in other folks' home was round out by his burial in other folks' cemetery plot. George Longfellow told a reporter that his cousin Frank would, quote, fall to, into a deep slumber the minute he hit the bed, and he had been hard of hearing for years. This little tidbit explains how he never heard Mary or possibly Ronnie get murdered. Also on Saturday morning, the headlines were about Mary. Quote, cops hunt friend of Mrs. Gideon, whom she called new husband. Second Mr. Gideon hunted. Seek Mrs. Gideon's new mate. <laughs> Ethel was sick of her family being dragged through the mud. So she decided to make a statement to the press. She addressed the reporters who had been hanging around at the police station. These second mate stories you fellows are printing are just nonsense. Absolutely untrue. My father and mother and sister have been vivisected and dissected to everyone's ghoulish taste. Things have been said about them that are unbelievable. 
I guess everybody alive is odd in some way, and when an awful thing like this happens, ordinary oddities are thrown up until people look like monsters out of some nightmare. Good point that she that makes. That was a very yeah. good point. Joe Kudner said, let me state first of all my complete belief in the innocence of my father-in-law, and my mother-in-law never operated or was arrested for operating a speakeasy. The fact is that certain persons rented property she owned and were charged with selling liquor there illegally. He told them that's all they had to say, and they left. While the tabloids speculated about Ronnie's boyfriends and which one of them could have done it, or Mary's love interests, the police were working on another angle, and not all of them even knew about it. They had found Ronnie's diary in her bedroom in search of the premises. Now there you go! And they had been studying it to see if any information on the murderer could be gleaned from it. The entry started back in 1932, about five years' worth of writing. And there was like 1,500 entries, but they were like short little right. verbs. She wrote a lot about Bobby in the beginning. She was crazy about him. Mm. This was Bobby Flower, her former husband. The name Bob showed up again in more recent entries, but the tone was different. She was talking about Bob being obsessed with Ethel. She wrote, Quote, I'm afraid of B. He has been hanging around the house since Ethel handed him a large dose of ozone. The detectives finally figured out this was a different Bob. Mm, it's not like it's an uncommon name. They went to ask Ethel, and she confirmed that this was a different Robert. This Bob was someone who had boarded at her mother's boarding house several years before. His name was Robert Irwin. But he couldn't have anything to do with this. He isn't that kind of person. He's an exceptionally talented sculptor. Oh. His heart is in his work, Ethel told mm. police. Sunday afternoon, Police Commissioner Valentine had a press conference that was sparsely attended. However, there were enough members of the press there that made the papers the next day and started a new frenzy. Valentine said, We now have a definite suspect in the Gideon murder, a sculptor, age 29, name of Robert Irwin. That's I-R-W-I-N. Every time I think something's spelled out, I think, oh, you probably didn't read The Stand. There's this guy. In the I did read The Stand. Are you kidding me? Where he says, that's, that's like my favorite Stephen M-O-O-N. King. Yeah, that's like <laughs> that my favorite guy. Stephen anyway. King book. He's a former inmate of the Rockland State Hospital for the but, Insane. But what I was thinking, I wasn't thinking about The Stand. What I was thinking of is how the cops, like, they just seem to hold press conferences about everything and tell the press everything. I know. Know. You know, like who their suspects I know. are. What they're... I know. Well, they needed the public's help. I guess. But it was it was a lot different than it is it today. It is. He's a former inmate of the Rockland State Hospital for the Insane. Ooh. Although Irwin is not yet in police custody, he will be soon. Nothing like telling him, you know. I know. We've been very close to him and missed him by a few minutes when he left his rooming house just before detectives arrived. There are men on guard at all bridges and tunnels leading from the city and at all bus, railroad, airplane, and ferry terminals. He won't get very far. I've issued the following teletype alarm to eight states. So this was a week after the murder. So this is the teletype. Wanted for murder, triple in parentheses. Robert Bob Irwin, last known address, 36 State Street, Canton, New York. Age 29, 5 foot 9 inches, 140 pounds, stocky. Now, how can he be stocky? And 140 pounds. I don't know. And, and 5 foot nine. 9. I don't know. <laughs> Dark, blonde, wavy hair, high forehead, squint eyes, U.S. nativity, tan fedora, light scarf, black overcoat, and shoes. Like he hasn't changed his clothes. Well, you know. Suit may be black with pencil stripe or bluish gray with pinstripes. Black shoes, size 8, which were made in Canada. Medium blue shirt with black stripe. Made by New Way Process Company of Pennsylvania. 
is a sculptor but may be employed or seek employment in taxidermy work or decorative flower establishments. Kindly make inquiries at art clubs and such places where he might seek employment. Lodges in cheap rooming houses and was formerly an inmate of the Rockland State Hospital for the Insane. Maybe hitchhiking to Philadelphia or Washington, D.C. Also check morgues for suicide and give this case the necessary attention. On Monday morning, April 5th, Acting Lieutenant Thomas Martin of the Homicide Squad called a press conference. He told the press they had a definite suspect who, quote, they were more interested in than any other man they had questioned. When asked for motive, police told the press that Bob Irwin had been infatuated with Ethel and she spurned him Mm. or gave him a a A, a huge dose dose of of ozone. ozone. I like that. At first, there was only one picture available of Robert Irwin and all the papers printed it multiple times. Just a head and shoulder shot. They reveled in the new subject matter. They dubbed him the mad sculptor. He was a (laughs) sexual pervert. One paper called him Gorilla Man. But who was he really? Ethel did not believe he was capable of such a crime. She was stopped by reporters outside the ASPCA where she had gone to pick up Tucci. When asked about Irwin, she said, I cannot believe that Irwin is the man that killed my mother and sister. Dr. Russell Blaisdell, who was superintendent of the Rockland State Hospital, had the same opinion. Even though Bob, quote, had trouble controlling his emotions and a vicious temper, this temper of his cooled off in a flash, after an outburst, he was extremely remorseful. I just can't visualize Red him flag. <laughs> as being connected with the Gettian murders. The Gettian murders were done by a crafty fiend who lay in wait. Irwin never could have lain in wait. He wouldn't have been able to control himself. And if he had done such a thing, he would have been sorry afterwards. He wouldn't hide. He would try to find someone to unburden himself to. Mm. Bob Irwin had a tumultuous life. He was born in a tent outside of Pasadena, California, the middle of three brothers. His father, Ben, had been a lawyer, but had a religious epiphany in his 20s and became an itinerant preacher who, though professing to be devout, liked the booze and the ladies, Mm. but in secret. Bob's mother, Mary, was Ben's second wife and came from Texas and a family with a history of mental illness. She was a religious zealot. Ben turned out to be a bigamist, and Mary raised the children on her own. Not only had he never divorced his first wife, but had a new family elsewhere Mm. and went to join them, and then he just went on. He was one of those guys that just kept marrying. (laughs) Moving on. Mary, not Mary Gettian, Mary Irwin, and Ben had a daughter who had died of whooping cough at age two and the three sons. The oldest was named Vidalin Bathurst Irwin. After a couple of religious guys. Did they call him that? They called him Bathurst? They called him Vitalin. Wow. Vital. Like Gore Vidal. Maybe it's Vidalin. I don't know. The youngest was named Pember, in honor of English evangelist and author G.H. Pember. The middle boy was named Fenelon Arroyo Seco Irwin. Francois Fenelon was a 17th century theologian admired by Ben. Arroyo Seco Park was the location of his birth. As a young adult, he took the first name Robert in honor of Robert Ingersoll, a famous critic of religion in the 1800s, mostly to annoy his mother, I think. Bob was very devoted to his mother, much more so than his older and younger brothers. Mary worked menial jobs but was in poor health, and the boys sometimes had to beg for food. The family moved around L.A. a lot, but Mary always found the time and energy to devote to her religious endeavors. She spent most of her time at church or at the mission helping others. Her Pentecostal religion required her to place her love of Jesus above all else, including family. Mm -hmm. The boys were pretty much on their own. 
Both Vidalin and Pember became career criminals and spent much of their youths in juvenile halls and reform schools. Though through the years, both boys were deemed by psychologists as highly intelligent, they seemed incorrigible. Bob not only visited church and the mission with his mother, but he had visited a brothel with his dad, although he didn't really know that's what it was at the time. Mm. He just thought they were nice ladies that were Aww. taking care of him while his dad went in another room with one other lady. <laughs> He was the best behaved of the boys and didn't get into trouble on the street like they did. But he did have a bad temper and fly off the handle and attack other children in school. He also started resisting his mother's religion. She wanted him to read the Bible every day and memorize a new psalm every week. He wanted to read novels. He told her to stop stuffing the Bible down his throat. Yeah. Shortly before he turned 12, Mary committed Fenelon, or Bob, to juvenile hall, saying that she could no longer care for him. He later said, quote, it relieved her of a heavy burden and she had more time to serve the Lord. His blood so she committed him but not his brothers? They got there on their own. Oh, okay. His blood test at the time showed he tested positive for congenital syphilis, as did his two brothers. When he was 12? Yes. Yeah. It's congenital. Oh, so right, because it, it passes in birth. Right. It's assumed that their father had passed it on. Yeah, that him. makes sense. A year later, Mary joined a religious sect and moved to Portland, Oregon. She moved in with a fellow follower, a woman who urged her to bring her sons to live, as this woman had a large house, and she also had a son who was like 10. Bob flourished when he lived in the house. His older brother didn't go. He was still in juvenile hall. He was serving a sentence. I think Pember went, but he ended up in juvenile hall when he was 10, so in Portland. So mm -hmm. It was during this time that Bob discovered his love of sculpting and would use whatever materials he could find, soap, wood, or bits of stone. He did well in school, but got in trouble for borrowing art books from the library and tearing out illustrations and then returning them with the pages <laughs> torn out. After living in Portland about a year, Mary was able to find a place of her own. Again, the boys had to beg for food because even though she had a job, she donated much of her money to the church. And she also spent her money. I mean, she spent her time at the church. So Bob stopped going to school about seventh grade and got a job as a stock boy. He was fired after six months for assaulting a co-worker. He was crazy mad, said the, <laughs> said the store manager. It was about this time that Bob first conceived his visualization theory, mm. which would rule his life. As he later described, quote, the reason people have so much difficulty in doing things is that they have such a hard time getting things in their head. You have to visualize first. Before a sculptor can make a statue, he has to make a mental statue. And the reason that even the greatest sculptor has such a difficult time making a statue is because he doesn't get it clearly in his mind first. To me, this kind of seems self-evident, but <laughs> to him it was mind-blowing. Yeah. He said, I expect someday to be able to form an absolutely clear and perfect image in my mind to be able to actually project it into the air before me so that I can actually see it there with my material eyes just as I see material objects. I expect to be able to hold it and make other people see it. Mm -hmm. He thought that would make him, quote, the most famous and unique sculptor that ever lived. I think it probably would. He flung himself into this idea, reading all he could about visualization, and coming up with exercises to try to perfect his powers of visualization, which didn't work, of course. Mm -mm. He continued to take books from the library and steal pages so he had a good collection of images to study and try to visualize into reality. 
Also, this is the time that Bob got interested in the writings of Robert Ingersoll, a humanist and agnostic. In the meantime, the local librarian filed a complaint about Bob's continued vandalism of books, and he was convicted in order to pay restitution of $53.88, which, according to the book I read, was about $800 today. He got a job to try to pay it off, another stock boy job, but he only lasted a few weeks before he attacked his supervisor and gave him a beating. (laughs) Mary had moved away at this point to go to the church summer camp. Bob went to court and asked to be committed to reform school, which they agreed and committed him. He was about 18. Bob became more of an ardent atheist and preached it in reform school. His temper also worsened. One school official wrote, quote, For no reason we could understand, he would explosively transform from a smiling, pliable boy into a brutish, belligerent animal. Once roused to a fighting pitch, he had no other thought than to destroy his foe. Bob's explanation was, quote, that happens all the time. They all think I'm a sissy, so I, <laughs> so I smash them in the jaw and become their enemy. There you go. After he was paroled in 1926, Bob went back to live with his mother. One of his jobs was at a factory that specialized in ornamental modeling, which was a good fit for his talents. But he got fired for hitting a co-worker who implied he was gay. Soon after, in the spring of 1927, he came home to find his mother had burned all his books that she didn't like. Wow. He left and never saw her again. So all the jobs he got fired from were for hitting people. (laughs) (laughs) And yet, he still managed to get jobs. He made his way south through San Francisco and eventually ended up in Los Angeles, along the way getting into fights. He found his way to the studio of Carlo... Romanelli, who made props for movies, for instance, statues in the silent movie version of Ben-Hur. Bob was a good-looking young man and had cleaned himself up buying a new suit with his last $20. He was engaging and well-spoken when not flying off the handle, and he was hired on the spot. Bob often bored his co-workers with his monologues about visualization. (laughs) He was obsessed with the idea. I know I shouldn't laugh. I know. He worked there for almost a year, longer than any other job so far. Romanelli liked him. He was talented and worked hard. Romanelli's wife couldn't stand the constant lecturing and found him overbearing and a braggart. His co-workers started telling him to shut the fuck up about visualization. (laughs) And the inevitable happened, he attacked someone, so he was fired. He was okay with it, though, because now he had more time to practice his visualization. (laughs) He did a bunch of odd jobs, modeling for a sculptor, making celebrity figures for a wax museum, and doing ornamental plaster work. In 1929, Bob decided to head to Chicago and try to get a job with Laredo Taft, who did the buildings for the 1893 World's Fair, which if you read Devil in White City, I did. Yeah. Yeah. In May, he packed his pilfered illustration collection and samples of his work and got on a train east. Taft was well known as a sculptor and lecturer, and he established Midway Studio in the early 1900s on the Midway Plaisance where the World's Fair had been. He had 13 different buildings and hired young sculptors who were looking for work if they were talented. He loved the mentor role, and he would go around lecturing about sculpting. Bob was hired on the basis of the quality of his samples and proved to be a good worker. Also, he became almost a protege of Taff, who took a liking to Bob. Bob was making $40 a week and was enjoying the city. He loved boxing and went to matches whenever he had the chance. He was a huge fan of Mac. Max Schmeling and called him, quote, the best looking man in the world. So I had to look up a picture of Max Schmeling. Yeah. I was like, um. He was also a fan of the movie star Ramon Navarro. Bob said, quote, I have two sides to my nature. One is that I like force, and that's why I like Schmeling. The other side of my nature is very spiritual. There's something very spiritual about Navarro. He's 
very much like Sir Galahad or Tristan. But I believe that Ramon Navarro died of being attacked. He picked up two hustlers. He was gay. Yeah. He made lots of friends in Chicago, fellow sculptors who would attend boxing matches with him. And they also had their own little amateur matches together, um, which he enjoyed because he loved hitting people. He got some commissions doing a bust of Schmeling for the Steuben Club, an organization of German-Americans, and a bust of Herbert Hoover. And Mrs. Hoover, after seeing a photo, wrote him a commending letter. He met Alice Ryan at a dance hall in the summer of 1929, and they started a relationship, though it was not sexual. Bob continued the practice of visiting sex workers that he had started when he lived in L.A. So he and Alice had a chaste relationship, but he was not chaste. By fall, she had accepted his proposal of marriage. Mm. Around the same time, the brother of an L.A. friend of Bob's moved to Chicago. Bob got him a room in his boarding house, and the boarding house was run by Laredo Tate's stepmother, an older woman. This housemate was Arthur Halliburton, who later became a journalist and crime writer. At first, Halliburton later recalled Bob was friendly, but he soon started to annoy Halliburton. Quote, he always talked about himself to the exclusion of any other subject. He was a complete egomaniac. Halliburton was not impressed with Irwin's theories. On the contrary, quote, Irwin had no pre-imagination, none whatsoever. That was his whole problem. He could imitate things. He couldn't create things. Mm. When Halliburton didn't show enthusiasm about visualization, <laughs> Bob started to dislike him. As Halliburton recalled, he came home one night and was getting something to eat. Bob was drying his sock in the gas oven, and Halliburton told him he didn't think that was a good idea because he was trying to eat, and it was gross, I guess. Yeah, it probably smelled. Bob attacked him brutally, causing neighbors to come running and the police to be called. Halliburton moved out that night. The group of friends and both men had made, because he had made the same friends Bob had, right. had turned, they turned against Bob. It was probably easy to do, because Bob was probably fucking annoying. <laughs> I know. Bob quit his job and got one at, at a plastic novelty company that paid better. He wanted to save up so he could quit work and devote his time to perfecting his visualization powers. <laughs> I can identify with that. That job didn't last long, though. He attacked a coworker because, <laughs> in Bob's words, he wanted to boss me around and butt into my business. Yeah. In August of 1930, after a few more failed jobs due to his temper and mental illness, Bob decided to try his luck in New York City. So he's about 23 at this point. Yeah. And if you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. Yeah. New York. But New also, York. we know that this is when young men, if they are severely mentally ill, this right, is when, when it they go, to show. Yeah. I, well, I think it started to show for Bob. Uh, well, it started yeah. a long time ago. He told Alice he would write to her when he was settled. Bob had no trouble finding a job, even though times in New York weren't great in 1930. He got a job at a studio that specialized in large cast bronze sculptures. Until January of 1931, when he was fired for, you guessed it, the, fighting with co-workers. Yeah. He also worked at a taxidermy shop for about eight months. During this time is when Bob discovered the writings of philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, who, and I'm over... The guy with the cat. I'm oversimplifying, <laughs> so sorry, said that humans are dominated by the oh, wait, will... wait, that's Schrodinger with the cat. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Listen, humans are dominated by the will to reproduce and sex drive. It's our strongest instinct, and everything else we strive to do takes a back seat to it. And he can speak for himself, by the way. That's not me. Yeah, I've missed out if that's Bob me. took this to heart oh. and decided he had to refocus the energy from his sex drive to visualization. In order to do that, he had to get rid of his sex drive. So he broke up with Alice in June. 
But they had a chaste relationship. Yeah, but he did. He fantasized about yeah, her okay, and yeah. masturbated all the time because okay. he's a young guy. A bit after that, he lost his job at the taxidermy shop, and for once, not because of fighting. It was because of the economy. Oh, he moved the into, depression. Yes, the depression. <laughs> He moved into a cheap rooming house to save money. It was hard to find a job anyway with unemployment so high. It was like 25% at the time. Yeah. So he spent his days with the shades drawn practicing visualization. <laughs> he so he kind of got his wish that he could just spend all his time. Yes. He became increasingly depressed when it wasn't working. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't laugh. I mean, the guy's obviously He also found out that both of his brothers were now serving long sentences in Oregon for car theft armed robbery and assault. He started to suffer a variety of physical symptoms and sought help. One of the doctors noticed signs of congenital syphilis. Bob confirmed that he did have it, and he was prescribed a series of shots, but he never got them. And I don't know. I didn't look it up. I know that if you have syphilis that isn't treated, it can cause... It eats away at your brain. But I don't know if congenital syphilis does. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. You aren't? No. Bob started to have suicidal thoughts. His landlady was an older woman who treated him like a son. He later said, quote, I was so miserable and sick that I thought I would commit suicide. But I wasn't going to kill myself. I thought I would kill her and go to the electric chair. Yeah, there you go. It's a plan. That's a kind of a complex yeah, solution. I'm not going to kill myself. I know I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> he admitted himself to a psychiatric hospital and was diagnosed with psychoneurosis psychasthenic type. This is an old-fashioned diagnosis that, that don't use anymore, but it describes a disorder characterized by phobias, obsessions, compulsions, or excessive anxiety. Mm. I think he was either bipolar or... Maybe schizophrenic. He was schizo- I think yeah. he was schizophrenic, probably, but who knows. Three weeks later, he was discharged to the Burke Foundation in White Plains, New York, a convalescent home that was set up to help people who, quote, by sickness or misfortune, couldn't care for themselves. Bob was there for nine months and had a job working in the kitchen. One of his co-workers said, quote, he would overdo everything that he undertook. He would talk about the benefit of deep breathing and in cold weather would run around without a coat. On two or three mornings, I heard him singing loudly at five in the morning. He explained he did it to develop his lungs. I'm sure everybody loved that. <laughs> he would lecture his co-worker Chuck Smith constantly on his theories and how he was going to channel his sexual energies to something more productive. However, his actions belied those words. Mm. He was always fooling around with other women patients and having sex with them and stuff. Well, it's one thing to, you know, imagine Mm. something. It's another to do it. This is when Bob got the idea that the best way to get rid of his sexual urges was to cut off his penis. Bob left the institution in the summer of 1932. He said it was because some of the women he'd been involved with hated him because he wouldn't have sex with them again. Did he leave it with his penis intact? Yes, he did. But records show that he left because of his violent behavior. He fled to avoid getting into trouble because he apparently was attacking people. He ended up homeless, working as a dishwasher. He happened to run into Chuck Smith again, who was living in a boarding house run by Mary Gideon. Chuck said that Bob could share his room for free until he got on his feet, and Mary Gettian said that was okay. Can I just ask, I mean, you may be getting to this, but did he ever revisit the penis thing? I wondered if it was just a visualization that he never... Oh, okay. I'm getting to that. Okay. And Bob moved in. He was there less than a week on October 27th when his sexual urges became too much. What year was it? 1932. Okay. He went into the bathroom and put a rubber band around his penis 
to cut off the circulation. Ow. He thought that would lessen the pain. He walked around for a few hours with the rubber band around his penis. Then he went back into the bathroom with a brand new razor blade and uh, tried to cut his penis oh, off. Oh, jeez. I don't even have one. I know. And that makes me I know, cringe. I know. The pain was too much. He walked to Bellevue Hospital at about 2.30 a.m. and asked the attending intern to finish the job. Instead, he was bandaged up and told to come back the next day. The next morning, Bob returned. An older doctor removed the rubber band, which, why didn't the intern remove it? I know. Well, maybe he left it. There's a tourniquet. Oh, yeah, maybe. How? And stitched him up. Bob begged him to finish the job, but he was like, no, I'm not going to. The doctor said it was an ugly, deep laceration. He admitted Bob to the psychiatric ward where he spent over five months. One of the doctors who treated Bob at Bellevue was Dr. Frederick Wortham. This started a long professional and slightly personal relationship between the two men. Bob continued his efforts to have his penis cut off and tried to enlist doctors to help him that worked it. Wortham advised him that just because it was removed wouldn't remove sexual desire, and he may just become more obsessed if he couldn't do it. Bob was not really swayed by this argument. Wortham was a Freudian analyst, so he spent hours going over Bob's childhood. Of course, his theory was that Bob had a mother complex. Of course. Bob also had an inordinate fear of being considered effeminate. Wortham wondered if this was reaction formation, where a person overreacts against something to hide their own tendencies. Mm. After five months at Bellevue, punctuated by a couple of violent incidents, Bob was transferred to Rockland State Hospital in upstate New York. Bob was treated better than some of the patients due to Dr. Wortham's influence. Both at Bellevue and at Rockland, he was allowed to sculpt. And at Rockland, he got his own room. So a guy who tried to cut off his dick. They allowed him, yes. Okay. Dr. Wortham apparently had a lot of influence because he thought that it would keep Bob, keep him happy. Channel his... Yeah, yeah. well, if you're a creative person, you know. But still, like, there's other forms of sculpting. He doesn't have to do that kind of sculpting. Right. He could have learned a new medium. Yeah. Um, That doesn't involve sharp objects. Yes. Both at Bellevue and Rockland, he was allowed to sculpt. And at Rockland, he got his own room instead of having to live in the dorm. They had, like, communal dorms. Mm-hmm. Rockland became notorious as a warehouse of mental patients a few years later when the New York Journal American had a reporter pose as a patient and wrote an expose. And a few years after that, Mary Jane Ward wrote the book The Snake Pit. Oh, yeah. That was about the hospital. Right. The title says it all. Bob continued his violent outbursts and spent time in the violent ward where some patients were kept in straitjackets for weeks at a time. I don't think they still make those. No, I don't. He escaped several times and was caught, but on one occasion he went to Dr. Wortham's home. Dr. Wortham told Bob he had to return to the hospital, but asked him to go with him to a psychiatric meeting that evening before he went back, I guess. Bob sat on the platform with the doctor while the doctor presented Bob's case, and other doctors asked Bob questions, <laughs> which he answered candidly. Yeah, hey. Then they argued what was wrong with him. Well, Bob <laughs> would just sat there. He didn't seem to bother him. Well, he probably liked it because he, he was the focus the of the attention. Yes, I think he did. Dr. Wortham had come up with a new diagnosis, that uh, this new disorder he made up. Well, I shouldn't say made up, but he came up with, called catathymic crisis, where explosive outbursts of temper, basically. Mm, okay. Bob was finally discharged from Rockland in May of 1934. He got a room in Manhattan and a job at a commercial sculpting firm that made plaster display products. He was making enough money to seek a better place and in July returned to live at the Gettyum Boarding House. So this was July 1934. Ethel became acquainted with Bob and was impressed with his talent. She agreed to pose for a head sculpture. They struck up a friendship. Ethel met a lot of artsy types at her job in publishing and she liked him. She thought he was interesting. She and Bob went to the Metropolitan Museum together and stuff like that. 
And she liked Bob, but Bob became obsessed with Ethel. Mm -hmm. He decided she was the ideal of beauty and everything he wanted in a woman. Ronnie noticed. She wrote in her journal, quote, Bobby is certainly making a play for my sister. I think he is out of his mind. He will never marry her if I have anything to do with it. I'm going to take the matter up with Mother. She will help me put the kibosh on it. Mary did take Bob aside and told him to lay off Ethel. She had a boyfriend who was in a better position to care for her. Bob told Dr. Wortham of his intentions. Dr. Wortham warned him that he was acting rashly. Bob proposed to Ethel shortly after that, but she told him she was engaged to Joe Kudner. After being dumped by Ethel, Bob became moody and sullen. His temper flared at work, and his boss gave him $25 severance and told him to leave. Bob came after him with a cleaver, which he used a cleaver to chip plaster. His boss, Gilbert Maggie, asked him what the hell he was doing. Bob said he was going to split his head down the middle, then fry his brains and eat them. He Mm. said, you never use them anyway. (laughs) Maggie threw a pot of wet plaster in Bob's face and threw him out on the street and locked the door, locked him out. Bob had a hard time finding another job. I bet. Well, he probably could have because there wasn't much communication, but it was a bad time to find a job. It was a depression. He ended up on welfare. Dr. Wortham told him he needed to return to the state hospital. Bob went back to Rockland and spent two more years there. He had his ups and downs there, but was allowed to sculpt. He made several busts, including one of Franklin Roosevelt, and on the strength of that, he was asked by Clarence Lowe, president of the board of Rockland State Hospital, and treasurer of the Democratic State Committee, to make one of him. Bob said, sure, send me some photos to work from. Well, maybe he didn't say it like that. Yeah. On July 1936, his condition was deemed much improved, and he returned to the Gideon Brownstone to visit. Mary told him where Ethel was living in Astoria, so he paid her and Joe a visit, giving her the bust he'd made of her. He said to her when he gave it to her, he said, I told her that there was much of myself in the sculpture, and now that she was married, I did not want to bring back old memories. Six days later, a despondent Bob returned to Rockland. He couldn't find a job, and he was very sad about Ethel being married mm. to someone else. During that three-month stint, he created a sculpture called the Cobra. It's a snake with big boobs and Ethel's face, if you can picture that. <laughs> There are pictures of it. <laughs> While back in Rockland in the fall of 1936, Bob became religious again. Oh, no. Red flag. Bob was allowed to give art classes to kids at Rockland. I don't know if they were kids that were residents. Or if they brought them into the know. Rockland Insane Asylum um, I don't know. art class. There was an attendant there who had been a divinity student at the St. Lawrence Theological School in Canton, New York, which is about 20 miles from the Canadian border. Yeah, St. Lawrence. This <laughs> attendant was impressed by Bob's intelligence and religious fervor. He wrote a letter recommending him to the superintendent, or I mean the dean. And although Bob didn't have a high school diploma, he was well-read, and sometimes the school would accept people with non-traditional backgrounds. Bob was accepted on a trial basis as a non-matriculated student. In September 1936, he left Rockland and headed north. Bob was an eager student and made a good impression. People did not seem bothered by his stints in the mental hospital. On the contrary, they felt he was trying to improve his life by helping others. He got a room at a boarding house and was his usual resourceful self, mowing lawns, shoveling snow, delivering newspapers, helping his landlords with their beekeeping business. One of his co-students was Izzy Dembski. Dembski was a scholarship student who had come from a hard scrabble life as well. He had done well in high school because teachers recognized his writing and public speaking talents, and he was a wrestling champ. 
He and Bob bonded because they were both kind of poor and working their way through without uh, jobs. He thought Bob was a talented artist and admired him, but for one flaw, Bob's temper. Like Izzy's father, Bob had an explosive, violent temper. I think some people are more apt to notice the signs when they've experienced the kind of thing. Yeah. Like Izzy had. He probably... Izzy later recalled, He offered to buy a milkshake one day. I declined because he didn't have much money either, and I figured going Dutch would be better. He insisted with such vehemence that I backed off and let him buy. He left school a little while later. Less than two weeks later, everyone would know about Bob and his explosive temper. Mm. Izzy would become famous, too, changing his name to Kirk Douglas. Wow. I did not <coughs> see that gotcha. coming. He did said, not see that I knew Kirk Douglas had a different name, I know. but I did not see that. Wow. He said that when he played Vincent Van Gogh in Lust for Life, which I really liked that movie. Yeah, it me was, too. It was fairly accurate. It was good, yeah. He used Bob as a model. Wow. I felt sorry for him. A talented artist at the mercy of incomprehensible forces. When I thought of Van Gogh, I thought of Bob Irwin. Wow. Nice ad there. I like that. I can't take credit for it. That's no, it's a book. Bob's class notebooks also contain lots of other stuff, like notes about Ethel and how much he loved her, mm-hmm. drawings of her thoughts of her, how he was trying to use visualization to telepathically communicate to Ethel. I've done that. His ranting and pontificating were driving everyone batty. He had a few violent outbursts, and the final straw was when he punched a fellow student in the jaw. He was expelled March 24, 1937. The dean of the school wrote to the superintendent of Rockland expressing concerns about someone like Bob being out in public. So was Dr. Wortham. He was concerned. He had recently lectured about his new theory, catathymic crisis, and said a person with this disorder is not cured. He will break out again in some act of violence against himself or others. Bob made his way back to New York City. He first went to Clarence Lowe's Park Avenue office to give him the bust he had made. He apologized for it, saying it wasn't any good. Then he started ranting about the St. Lawrence School and all this other Mm. stuff. Lowe pretended he had to be somewhere and accompanied Bob out of the building, saying he had to catch a train and took off. It sounds like Bob is also the kind of person where it's always other people's fault. Oh, yeah. yeah. Bob went looking for a room, found an attic room to rent, and left his bags there. And then he found a payphone and called an acquaintance, William Lamke. Lamke and Bob had met at Rockland when they were both patients. Lamke originally got in trouble for insurance fraud, but then kind of went off the deep end when he started hearing voices and he joined a cult. And then he started writing, like, threatening letters to people. And mm. But he was now out. He, he was working as an industrial relations consultant. And before his trouble, he had been a professor of municipal government at NYU. So he was like in his 40s when all that mm-hmm. happened. He lived on Long Island with his adult son. Bob wanted to meet for dinner. He had something to give Lamke. It was an autobiography that he had written. Bob had typed a letter that said Lamke could be the ghostwriter, and whatever he wanted to add or subtract was fine. Lamke was like, okay, whatever. Like He was confused as to why anyone would want to read about Bob. Bob became it, agitated. I was just going to say, it makes me think of all those self-published memoirs I, I had to read. He said... Did it say how long the book was? It was like 50 pages. Oh, okay, that's not bad. He said, I'm damn sick and tired of being misunderstood. Like, I can identify yes, that. There's so, there was some other passage that I thought you could identify. I didn't yeah. use my thing. Lamke was taken aback by the outburst. So he just said, fine, and they parted ways. Fine, I'll read your piece of shit book, Bob. He just took it, and I was like, yeah. okay. On Saturday, 
So this was the morning. The day before Easter, right? Bob met with a young woman who was the fiancé of an acquaintance. Her brother worked at the Museum of Natural History, and she thought maybe Bob could get a job in the department that made the dioramas. But it didn't work out. Bob was disappointed, but he put on a brave face and invited Leonora, the young woman, to visit the Metropolitan Museum of Art with him. She enjoyed the visit so much that she agreed to meet with him the next afternoon, but of course he never showed up. Mm-hmm. Bob went back to his room to get a bust of Marlena Dietrich that he thought he could sell. Unsuccessful at that, he walked the streets picking up an ice pick he found along the way. There you go. So something shiny, and he picked it up. Yeah. He thought of throwing himself in the East River, but then he started thinking kill about... My, his, kill myself! Yes, he started thinking about his previous plan. Right. Kill someone else and die for it. Yeah. He decided Ethel was the perfect sacrifice. A win-win situation. Mm-hmm. For some reason, he was under the impression that Ethel had left her husband and was living with Mary. Saturday night, he stopped by the apartment looking for Ethel. Mary told him Ethel was not there. She didn't live there. And Ronnie was out on a date. Bob didn't believe Mary, but didn't let on, really. He sat down for a visit with Mary while Mary prepared the Easter meal, and he sketched her and talked to her. The border, the English guy came in, and he introduced... Frank Burns. Yes, she introduced him to him, and he went right to bed. Now I'm going to read Bob's own words about what happened that night. Okay. As he told his story to the Chicago Herald Examiner. I went down to the river, and I stood looking at the water, intending to jump in, and I just couldn't do it. And then I said to myself, I'm going up there to kill Ethel. So I went to the Gedeon apartment. No one was there. Finally, Mrs. Gedeon came home. She was very tired. She asked me if I would take her dog out for a walk. I took him for a walk around the block and brought him back. Ethel and Ronnie were out having a good time, so I drew Mrs. Gedeon's picture to kill as much time as possible. Then in comes this little Englishman. She introduced him to me. He went to his room. I took just as long as I could on that picture, and all the time I was feeling her out about Ethel. She didn't tell me anything, though. She was holding out on me about Kudner and whether they had broken up. Then I said I wanted to see Ethel. She said, Bob, Ethel isn't here, and it's very late. I said, I'm going to stay here until I see Ethel. All of a sudden, she flew at me and yelled, get out of here, or I'll call she the Englishman. She just went nuts for no reason. Well, I hit her with everything I had. I choked her. All this time, this damned Englishman was in the next room just ten feet away. She put up a hell of a fight. I can't understand why she didn't bring down the whole town on us. She fell back on the floor with her legs back over her head. She scratched my face like nobody's business. My hands were full of blood. I smeared it on her, on her face and on her breast. I threw her in the bedroom under the bed. I stood there waiting for Ronnie and Ethel. I'm glad that Ronnie's friend Jean didn't come. I liked her very much. (laughs) Finally, Ronnie came in laughing and throwing her head back and went into the bathroom and stayed there for about an hour. I thought she was never coming out. I was in the first bedroom. I went into the kitchen and got some ordinary soap and made myself a blackjack out of it with a cloth. I didn't want to hurt anybody. I didn't know whether it was hate or love that made me do it. I meant to finish the job, that's all. Suddenly, Ronnie came through the door and I let her have it. The soap went all over the floor. It didn't have the slightest effect. He had read that you could make like a... You put it in a cloth and hit somebody like yeah. a... Yeah. It, it doesn't seem like it would have a lot no, of No, he wasn't. I can very well believe she was drunk because she didn't put up any fight at all. I grabbed her by the throat and took her into her room. I did not attack Ronnie. I was never intimate with her. She went with a class of people who are way above me. Mm. She went with millionaire sons and she didn't have any reason to be interested in me except that I was interested in Ethel. 
and Ronnie occasionally messed around with me. I gave her a bath once. I stayed with Ronnie for three nights when Ethel and her mother were away, and she ran around the house half-naked. I had the ice pick ready in case Ethel should come in, because the two of them could make a lot of rumpus. I kept Ronnie there until early morning, holding her just so she could breathe. She asked me not to attack her, that she had just had an operation. I didn't know what to do. I could wait to see if Ethel came in. I disguised my voice as well as I could, but it wasn't enough. Finally, she said, Bob, I know you. You are going to get in trouble if you do this. Then I closed down on her. I only used my hands. Nothing but the pressure of my hands. I asked her where Ethel was. She said she was married to that kid, Cudner. I asked if she was coming home. She said she wasn't. I held her for a long time, at least an hour. I was holding her on the bed, strangling her. Afterwards, I went right out, because she immediately became the most repulsive thing I've ever seen in my life when she was dead. It was like blue death just oozing out, a spiritual animation just oozing out. Then I went in and fixed the Englishman. I just went in and gave it to him in the temple with the ice pick. I hit him once and he kept twitching. I didn't want to kill him. No. I intended to kill Ethel with the ice pick. I had only intended to stab Frank Burns once, and all the other times I stabbed him were simply to get him out of his misery. As regards to Ethel... How many times was he stabbed? Like 19 times Jesus or something. Jesus Christ. As regards to Ethel, I would have killed her. I don't think I would have marred her, her features as I only wanted to stab her once, and one little hole would not show. I washed the blood off in the bathroom and got my stuff together. Then I went and took a little clock and some pictures that belonged to Ethel. I searched the drawers for pictures of Ethel, and I didn't find them. I found two of Ronnie. One was a profile, the other was a nude. Then I got my stuff and went back to my room. I got home at 6.30 and slept all day. I woke up hearing them call extras. These people I killed aren't lost. Theirs are borrowed lives, and if I live, I will repay them. I only meant to borrow one life. I will repay these lives by developing that power of visualizing, (laughs) which is the next step in the evolution of the human race. Mm. Reminds me a little of Scientology or something. I know, it does. He could have, well, you know what? In a different time and place, he could have had a cult. Although New York police were convinced that Bob was still in the city, he had left. The papers kept them on the front page. He left Sunday morning right before that teletype thing went out. Wow. On April 12th, the Daily News printed the first part of the serialized Robert Irwin's own life story, supplied to them by William Lamke. For money, of course. (laughs) Everyone was selling their stories. Even Ethel sold a story. Wow. By April 13th, the Evening Journal had a headline, Police Admit Irwin Clues Are Exhausted. And this was Monday, the week after the murder. There was one detective who was not working on the case, but had been thinking a lot about it. His name was John J. Whalen. Prior to his job with the NYPD, he had worked as a baggage clerk at Grand Central Station. He knew how unclaimed pieces of luggage often had clues to crimes Mm. among them. And he figured if he were a fugitive, he wouldn't be lugging his suitcases all over the place. He'd check them somewhere. On his own time, he went through all the unclaimed luggage at every place in the city he could think of. Grand Central and Penn Stations, bus depots, subway lockers. On April 26, he found two suitcases, one held together with an old belt. In it were the following items. A sketchbook with Robert Irwin's name on it. A box of business cards that said Robert Irwin's sculptor. Newspaper clippings about the Easter murders and a baby Ben clock which was identified by Lucy Lucy Bieco, whatever her name is. As the missing clock. Yes. Well, this didn't tell them where he was. It did tie Bob Irwin to the murders. The editors at Inside Detective decided they were going to use their resources and large readership to help find the killer of Ronnie. 
whom many of the staff knew and loved. West F. Peterson wrote, All who encountered Ronnie through business liked her. She always had a smile for the receptionist and never ritzed the office boy. At Christmas, when one of the staff was ill, she chipped in to buy the convalescent a present. Members of the art department who knew her best said she was fun-loving, conscientious, and generous, and altogether likable. For this reason, the news of her sudden and altogether horrible death came as a shock, almost too staggering to be credible. And it is only natural that Inside Detective is taking a personal interest in the solution of the mystery and the capture of her killer. After summarizing the crime, he wrote, The publishers of Inside Detective have offered $1,000 reward to be given to the detective or the private citizen who does the most toward obtaining detection, apprehension, and conviction of the killer or killers. If Robert Irwin is not captured at the time of publication of the current issue, Inside Detective readers are urged to watch for the young artist who is admittedly affected with a social disease and whose alleged mania to kill springs from a religio-sexual complex, Mm. which in the past caused him to be committed to institutions for the insane. Anyone turning in Robert Irwin will automatically be considered a leading candidate for the Inside Detective reward money. Study Irwin's photograph. Know Irwin's characteristics. Remember that Irwin may be anywhere and that he may be masquerading in female attire. There was some rumor going around that he might be dressed as a woman. Oh, like Robert Durst. (laughs) The article had a bunch of pictures of Ronnie, some of Joseph, even one of Tucci, the only living witness, it said. Oh, Tucci. And one of Robert Irwin, that one that they keep showing. It was the July issue, which came out in June, as magazines do. In May of 1937, Henrietta Kosiansky was working at the Statler Hotel in Cleveland, Ohio. She worked in the kitchen as a pantry maid, preparing salads, veggie platters, etc. In May, she noticed a new worker, a nice-looking boy who had worked his way up from a dishwasher to busboy to barboy, which meant he kept the bar stocked with clean glasses and ice. He was a hard worker and generally liked by his co-workers. He liked to draw sketches of people for a quarter during lunch breaks. He did freak out sometimes and had a temper, though. Mm. His name was Bob Murray. (laughs) <laughs> he asked Henrietta out, but she told him she didn't know him well enough. But she did agree to let him sketch her portrait when he offered to do it for free. On June 23rd, she sat for a quick portrait after work. She was working the night shift and went up to a room reserved for employees since she had to work early the next morning. And a lot of people that work in hotels yeah. do that. She couldn't sleep and asked her roommate if she had anything to read. The other girl tossed her the July issue of Inside Detective. Oh, wow. As she read the article about the murdered model, she noticed the picture of the murderer. She asked her roommate, doesn't that look like Bob? The girl (laughs) agreed it did, and they thought it was funny. (laughs) They didn't actually think he was the murderer, but she thought she'd tease him about it the next day. Uh Uh-oh. But she didn't see Bob until two days later. He came into the kitchen to get some ice, and she playfully asked him if he ever heard of Bob Irwin. He turned quickly and left, muttering no on his way out. That was when she started to wonder. She retrieved the magazine from her room and showed it to co-workers. Most of them saw a resemblance, so they called the police. By this time, it was 12.25 a.m., Sunday, June 26th. Detectives showed up, but Bob was nowhere to be found. His employment application listed a flop house as an address. A search of his room there showed someone had left in a hurry, but they did find clippings with news stories about the manhunt of the mad sculptor. Mm. The next morning, early editions had headlines, Irwin found in Ohio, escapes. Girl spots Irwin in Cleveland. He flees. Irwin spotted in Cleveland, escaped police net. Mm-hmm. Someone at the Greyhound Terminal, when shown his picture, said it looked like a guy who had boarded the 120 bus for Chicago. 
Bob actually hadn't left New York for a full week after the murders. He hid in his room, only going out at night until the scratches on his face healed. On Sunday, April 4th, he checked his bags at Grand Central Station and took a train to Philadelphia. On Monday morning, he saw a headline, Mad Artist Wanted, because that's when the news broke. Yeah. And decided to leave town. He took a train to Washington, D.C. He spent the day there, no disguise, no one recognized him. He then hopped a freight car and ended up in Willard, Ohio. He hitchhiked to Akron, then to Cleveland, and he had been in Cleveland since April 8th. When he fled Cleveland, he had no plan. Next bus out of town was Chicago, so that's where he headed. He walked around, went to the movies. He decided he might as well make some money. Maybe he could help out his brothers. He went to a payphone and called the Chicago Tribune, but was hung up on when he said who he was. <laughs> he tried the Boy, chi- that's a bad nose for news somebody had. He tried the Chicago Herald and Examiner next which was a Hearst-owned company. Mm -hmm. He reached the city editor, Harry Romanoff, and instead of saying he was Bob Irwin this time, he just told them he had information about him. He told the editor that Bob wants to give himself up, and he wanted to know what kind of deal they could give. Romanoff said he wanted to talk face-to-face. Bob agreed, and they met at the fountain in front of the Art Institute. He agreed to give a complete and signed confession for exclusive rights to the Hearst Syndicate for $5,000. He had agreed not to speak to any other news outlets for two weeks. And that was the confession I read earlier, what he told them. After a bunch of wrangling with Chicago police and New York police, Bob was extradited to New York. He requested an all-white suit for his journey. He was provided with a white summer suit, a Panama hat, and black and white shoes like the ones I have on now. Yeah, wow, in tribute to Bob. In tribute. There you go. I have some black and white wingtips. Mm. But mine are um, Doc Martens. Yes. That I've had for like 25 years. He left on a chartered plane. The stewardess said he was nice and polite. Mm-hmm. The pilot said he didn't know what it was all about. He looked nuts to me. <laughs> the plane landed at Floyd Bennett Field just before midnight, June 27th. A few hundred were there to see him, reporters and women. Most of the crowd were women, like most of the oh, lucky losers are women. Kinda, yeah. Well, you know, women we women like the true crime. Yeah. He waved to the crowd as he disembarked. At police headquarters on Center Street, he refused to speak to anyone. He asked they call Dr. Wortham. Though it was 3 a.m., the psychiatrist came to the station. They realized Bob was afraid he would lose his $5,000 if he spoke to police because of his non-disclosure thing. (laughs) The doctor convinced him it was okay and he would get the money, so he told him what happened. While still in Chicago, Bob had sent a telegram to Samuel Leibowitz, a well-known defense attorney who had represented the Scottsboro Nine. Leibowitz maintained that Bob was crazy and shouldn't go to prison. Leibowitz had a record of never losing a client to the Galactic Chair, and he had, he had like, over 100 capital cases wow. that he had won. Well, not won, but they didn't go to the right. chair. Well, that's he a wasn't going to start with Bob Irwin. Right. In the meantime, Henrietta Kosiansky got a telegram that she won the $1,000. Good for Henrietta. And she was going to New York to pick it up. She made the most of her time there appearing on the radio. She was an aspiring singer. Mm. She wanted to be like Kate Smith. She posed for pictures. She even posed next to Joseph Gideon. Who asked her if she wanted to kiss for the camera, but she was not on board with that. No. She told reporters she never read newspapers. She got too mixed up when she read them. She (laughs) couldn't believe that she won. She was going to use her winnings to help her family buy a house and 
for medical expenses for her brother. On November 10, 1938, Bob Irwin ended up pleading guilty to murder in the second degree for the two Gideon women and murder in the first degree for Frank Burns. He got 20 years each for Ronnie and Mary and 99 years for Frank. And Frank was first degree because he actually went in there with a plan to kill him. Right. He, According to what he told them, he didn't plan. He just flew off the handle with Mary and, say, and Ronnie. He didn't. Bob asked his attorney, Lieberman, for $500 out of the $5,000 to bring to prison. Bob said he was going to use the time to practice visualization. <laughs> he, all the time he figured he could pay a guard 25 cents a day to help him. He could mm-hmm. train someone to be his assistant, one of the guards. Why do you need an assistant to visualize, to do the he visualization? Had, there was a, something before that he had paid this boy in the neighborhood when he lived in L.A. to help. The boy would, like, time him or something. Oh, okay. okay. And then call out, you know, oh, the okay. time. And he was allowed. They they pinned a $500 bill, which I don't think they still make those, into his, like, the pocket. And when he got to prison, they put it in the safe or whatever they do. It was the most money anyone had ever brought to Sing Sing, I guess. I bet. As he was led back to the tombs to await sentencing, he smiled broadly for the camera. Yeah, I saw that photo in your At the post. sentencing a couple of weeks later, Bob tried to give a, a long speech about visiting. <laughs> when they asked if he had anything to say. <laughs> oh, Bob, Bob, But the Bob. judge cut him off, telling <laughs> it was not appropriate. As he was led out of court, Bob yelled, I wonder if Ethel is here. Is she here? I wonder if she has the courage to show her face in court, which, of course, she wasn't there. No. He was initially sent to Sing Sing after being evaluated by prison psychologists, and they had a hard time evaluating them because he would not talk to them and he he would turn his back on they should them. have asked him about visualization i know <laughs> he was transferred to danamora prison for the criminally insane i've driven by there despite dr worthen's <laughs> efforts on bob's behalf he was not allowed his sculpting stuff oh there. poor bob a letter bob wrote to dr worthen in the winter of 1948 told the doctor how he had found a sparrow with one foot frozen off i'm keeping it in a box but i'm afraid it will die i don't want to kill it and yet it cannot possibly live if I turn it free. So what shall I do? Anyway, this is a tough world for a lot of people, including sparrows. Mm, I almost feel like the same thing could happen today with different psychiatric diagnoses and stuff. But like the red flags people miss are still, as you know, I just, is because I talk about it all the time. It's my visualization. <laughs> no, but I read that book, The Gift of Fear. But now I'm also reading... The original book about coercive control by Evan Stark about how people dismiss anything that isn't just out and out violence, like Mm. his obsessive behavior. And like when he says, like in his quote unquote confession, and you always know what these guys, their confessions aren't, you know, they minimize what they did. But when he was talking about how Mary wouldn't give information up about Ethel in both the gift of fear and coercive control, what they talk about is stalkers and how lots of times they don't even recognize the negative signals they're getting from people and people try to be polite and people don't hit people over the head which you have to like bob sounds like the kind of guy you have to tell him but mary was probably telling him ethel's married and doesn't live here she did and she yeah she apparently did and he mm-hmm. right and he hears it is her not telling yeah. him what's going on with ethel and i feel bad for ethel in the both of the books she is adamant that he could not have done it even after he was well, arrested and he clue. was on the run i think the reason she probably felt that way was because if she had admitted that it was right. his obsession with her it kind of not right. that, it, not, it, would it would make her make, be guilty not that she was it, but right but it's she, the way people she was just think. an object of his 
obsession. obsession. And, he was an obsessive And you person. almost wonder, like, I don't necessarily think he was lying when he said he wanted to kill Ethel. But I also think killing anyone in her sphere was good because what he really wanted was to get Ethel's attention. And so killing her mother and sister and poor Frank Burns, who just happened to be in the wrong oh place at the wrong time. And he didn't even hear anything. He didn't even have but to But I tell also him. feel like it's a little misogynistic that he got a bigger sentence for him yeah. than he did for killing the women because he went there with the intention to kill someone. Yes, he did. It wasn't an accident that he killed Mary. He didn't accidentally kill Ronnie. He intended to kill both of them. And the fact that he strangled them after messing around, you know, the fact that he was with, he claims to have been with Ronnie for hours, who the fuck knows what he really did? I know. And also there was evidence that she yes. had had sex. And, a, and there was bruising. And she apparently did not have sex with Stephen. Right. Bitson. And so he raped them as well as murdered them. And the sentence should have been greater. But as we know, even today, the sentences for men who kill women are much lighter than, for instance, the sentence for women who kill men. Mm-hmm. Unless you're a black man, and then you it's a different story. Yeah. It's, it's kind of sad in a way, because he was obviously mentally ill from a young age, and he came from a family with a lot of mental illness, and people just pass it off as, oh, he's obsessed about this, he's annoying. His, his mother's family, there was a lot of crap going on in that family, so... Yeah. She obviously had some kind of obsessive issues, too. Right. Who knows? I mean, a lot of people... Obsession can be a dangerous... Well, thing. they didn't used to diagnose children with mental illnesses, with schizophrenia right. and stuff. But I've talked to people that have kids that have mental illnesses, and there are indications when they're kids of things that... And, of course, his mother wouldn't have noticed anyway, because right, she, she was, she was too busy home. talking to Jesus. It's just like Todd Colehep. In episode five, where he raped that girl and everything, and people are like, oh, he's a difficult kid, he's an angry kid, but nobody says, this is a seriously dangerous kid who's going to do bad things to people. Well, I mean, he kept going into the... He probably wasn't getting much treatment, but that Dr. Borden tried, like, at least... People seem to take a shine to him. That was very interesting, and now I want to read the books. Yeah. Well, there's lots of pictures in the model crime, but... I like that. I don't know if they ever would have found him. Well, they did find it due to police work. And it's funny, I was going to mention that. You know, they had all that stupid bullshit about focusing on the wrong people for the wrong reasons... And it's the good old-fashioned police work, the guy going through the suitcases. And the diary. Whoever read the diary. Right. And you see that today, too. Like, people say, oh, it was 80 years ago or whatever. People are different now. But it's true. They go after somebody based on stuff that's not evidence instead of looking at the victims. And they did start jury selection, but his lawyer really, yeah. really... Told you don't want to go. Got to plead guilty. It was so sensationalized. You don't want to go before a jury with that. Bullshit. He would have got the electric chair. But anyway, thank you. That, I like that. I like the old timey ones. I know. Well, the good thing is we're far enough removed from them that yeah, right. That we don't have to do updates. Well, that's true too. Now we have some recommendations. <laughs> Because I haven't had time to read or watch or do anything because I'm trying to finish my book. I don't know if I mentioned I'm writing. Oh, you write a book? Nah. But I do listen to podcasts, driving around to work and stuff. One I started listening to recently is Truth and Justice. And I'd heard of it, but I had never listened to it before. I had heard of it as being a quote-unquote crowdsourced thing. And that was a turnoff to me Mm. because other people's opinions are so offensive to me. (laughs) Haha, no, I'm just joking. Because it just seemed like, uh... 
but I heard the host, Bob Ruff, on Real Crime Profiles, which I also listen to. Ooh, and you listen to so many. Well, I have a hour and ten minute commute when I don't work at home, okay. if I have to defend that. You don't? Uh, you actually don't? Sometimes I listen when I'm washing the dishes. It actually... I do too. Because I'm not a big dishwasher, so it actually gets me to wash the dishes. What Truth and Justice does is they talk about a case and they it's very evidence-based. They take the evidence, the, things like affidavits and police reports and court transcripts, they take a whole season to do a case. They were doing what most people know as the West Memphis 3 case, which I felt like I've heard enough about in my life to never have to hear anything about again. But he was interesting enough on Real Crime po- Profiles that I decided to start listening. And I'm about 13 episodes in, and what they do is one week they present, he Bob Ruff presents, and then people email or send voicemail if they have information or they know of information or to ask questions and stuff. So then the next episode, they have a follow-up where they answer questions or bring up new things. And they do it in a very methodical way. They're going step by step, and this is a case where there's so much information out there, and yet they're going at it like it's a new case, very methodical And if you don't know what case the West Memphis Three is, look it up because I don't want to get into a whole explanation. But most, I think most people who listen to this know what it is. And so, number one on the NNW rating system, bad reenactments. Since it's podcast, some do do audio reenactments. They don't do any, so they keep their point there. Narrative cliches, no. Bob is very straightforward and no bullshit, and doesn't speculate a lot about bullshit things, which sometimes narrative cliches can come from, so there are none of those that I can think of. Racial and gender obtuseness, just like with the narrative cliches, it's all fact-based. There isn't a lot of speculation, somebody would do this because of this kind of thing, that they keep their point for that. Lack of good visuals or audios, there is a lot of audio. One episode, because I'm only partway through this, they played more than an hour of the cult so-called expert testifying at the trial, or occult expert, not cult expert. The audio was pretty good. I think they work hard to make sure any audio they're going to play is good. And some podcasts, when they play like a court thing or something, it's hard to hear. Yes. He also will say that may have been a little hard to hear, but what he said was blah, blah, blah. Which is good. Which is good. So I they keep their point for that. Missing Pieces, they're exhaustive in their research from what I can tell so far. Maybe once I'm done with Season 5, I'll go back. But this is a case that people are obsessed with and everybody has opinions of and stuff. And they're plowing just ahead in a very methodical way. And they're covering a lot of bases. So, so far, they keep their point for that. Inaccuracy or anachronisms, nope. Storytelling, it doesn't sound like this would have good storytelling, but it's, it's not flashy or artistic storytelling, but the picture they paint and the fact that they're focusing on the three children who were killed, when a lot of what you see focuses on the three teenagers who ended up being arrested falsely, in my opinion, is a good way to approach it. Freshness, it is fresh, given that there's been so much done on this case. Their approach is very fresh and refreshing, and... Mm you hear a lot that you wouldn't normally hear because they're not doing it out of emotion or assumptions. They're but just going focusing on, on the, the evidence. Just the facts. 
Repetition is the one place where I have some issues. And I understand when you're crowdsourcing. As some of the questions people ask, it's like they weren't listening. Yeah, I give Bob rough credit for being patient and patiently answering and stuff like that. I'm going to take away half a point just Ooh. because and maybe it's the nature of the thing when you have people asking questions. And maybe he feels if somebody's asking this question, then there's 100 people out there. Or maybe they got the question 100 times and he feels it's necessary to answer it. So I'm taking away half a point for repetitiveness. And the final one, banging the drum, I don't take away any points because... This is a case where the drum has been banged and banged and banged, and I know he must be getting a shitload of crap from people for his approach and people who believe a certain thing in a certain way, and he's just very, I keep saying the word methodical, but it's methodical, it's evidence-based, and he's very calm about it. I know he's had to cut people off on their Facebook page and stuff because people want to bang their drum and he doesn't do any of that there's no drum banging (laughs) at all and i I think anybody who does a podcast if you do certain cases and even we have experienced it we have won't go into detail i i say i'm 13 episodes in but that includes the episode and the follow-up so i've listened to 26 i guess yeah i just started listening a couple weeks ago and so it's a 9.5 right now no. And, and sooner or later, I'm going to have one that I give a really bad my well, recommendation. Like I said, it's not necessarily good. At right, it's our, our rating scale. system. The one I'm doing is a Netflix show called I Am Innocent, which I saw come up a lot. I keep avoiding watching yeah. it. Well, it's actually good. I'm anxious to hear what you say. I don't know why I decided to finally watch it. Because there was nothing else to watch. I think that was it. And I was like, you know what, I'll try this if I don't like it. It's got two seasons. They're short seasons, maybe eight episodes each. I watched them all in a week or so. It's a New Zealand show. It's about people who are, are innocent. innocent. It's an interesting show. It's it's a different approach. There are other shows similar to it, but basically it's a person telling their story about what happened. Each episode has the person just around just telling their story, and they do have reenactments. So I'm going to go through our, our little list here. Right. So bad reenactments, I'm giving it a half a point off. They have the kind that are like... The people aren't really talking most of the time. It's kind of like... Right. It's like act. Yeah, they're actors. The... But a lot of times the actors lo- don't look anything like the person. And uh, it is very disconcerting because you're seeing the actual person talking. So that bothers me. Um, but I'm only taking off half a point. I don't know. Because on some of them, they don't have the actual person telling the story. They have the person's words. And because of whatever it was the person was accused of, a couple of them are sexual molestation of children mm. that they were accused of. And I think that they just don't want their face to be on there. Yeah. Yeah, well. So they have an actor speaking the person's words. But they do a really good job. Can I, can I ask a question about the show? In general, is it people who are saying they're innocent? Or no, is it it's people been pro- who- they've been proven innocent. Oh, okay. They've been proven innocent. And then a lot of times in New Zealand, apparently, there's a fund that you will get. You've been wrongfully convicted. Yeah, you get money. Wow. Let's like, get wrongfully. So I took a half point off because some of them were annoying. But I don't really mind the actor thing. I actually, the people that do it have done a good job. So it doesn't bother me. Right. Maybe it's because when the reenactments, they have the actor person. So it doesn't. They're good stories. There's really serious crimes like that. and then, But then there's some that aren't as serious. There's a woman that got. I guess she is innocent. She was a drug mule, but she was she right. didn't realize right. it. Right. The New Zealand 
justice system is a little different than ours, so that's interesting, because they usually talk about the Next. narrative cliches, not really, because it's just people telling their stories. Race, gender, obtuseness, no. As a matter of fact, they show people from all different walks of life, and there are a few Maori people on it that have been targeted, be- you know, because of the fact of their race. Lack of good visuals, yeah. Like I said, the reenactments. Ugh. Right, I would rather see, like... TV footage. They or do have even some of the courtroom scenes, but and they do have photographs. But um, missing pieces, not really. They the people tell their whole story. I usually don't. You don't have many questions because it's like hour long of right. someone telling something. Inaccuracy and anachronisms, no, because the people are telling what happened. Right. Storytelling, I I think they have very good storytelling. I enjoy hearing the people's own words. You know, you have a lot of empathy for these people. Freshness, I think it's fresh. I have to say, thinking about that's the one reason I've avoided watching it, because although... I get pissed off and I'm interested in people who are wrongly convicted. I'm like, oh my God, do I really want to watch a show well, where people have been wrongly it's convicted? It's good because it's basically the person's telling their story. But they've not, already been found to be yes, wrongly. Yes, and they're so not it's histrionic. Not it's right. not, yeah. Um, repetition, a negative one because you know how they show the same over things and over and over in the same pitch. Um, beating the drum... I took off half a point because on some of them, they do kind of beat the drum about the unfairness of what happened. Not the person telling the story so much as the narrator. narrator. I'm trying to think if there's a narrator or if it's just my feeling of the way the story is told. But I did get that feeling a couple times. Like, it's like, okay, I know this person. Tell us or show us, don't tell us. Overall, it got a seven. And I would watch it again. I was upset that there were only... When I finished oh, the so last my, one. Well, maybe I'll watch it now that I've gotten rid of my cable and am only watching... So, we, next time it's up. my turn. Yeah. And I and I have one I'm thinking of doing, but I don't want to commit. Yeah. I never like to commit. Sure. Okay. Yeah, so, anyways, anyway. But we'll we see you next time. Okay. Bye-bye. It's funny... Um, Wait. I need to have some... Uh, you didn't want it. Okay. I did want it, but I don't want to eat while you were... Okay. I'm going to chuck it to so it. Can, uh, okay. Let's talk about this. Episode 5. Why can't... I'm sorry, I can't remember. Just say it and I'll... Don't say it with cookie in your mouth.